let's go into it. So yeah, I think we're in um, historical miniature wargaming podcast version uh, episode three. Is that right? Is that where we're at? Yeah, I think it's episode so. three. So we, yeah. we we've released our initial episode. We did the firefight episode, and now we're doing the social isolation episode. I guess. <laughs> Yeah, that's yeah. A, I that's think a I prefer entrenched position. Entrenched position. Entrenched positions. Okay. Entrenched. Yeah. Yeah, I like <laughs> okay. that. All right, that's good. Um, so uh, we've got Jacob, Dan, and Gorchin here. Unfortunately, we're all on uh, Zoom, like most of the rest of the world right now, um, because of COVID nineteen. Uh, but that's not going to stop us from playing bolt action. Unfortunately. It does stop us from meeting, um, but we are doing a lot of that stuff digitally at the moment. And, you know, we're still doing painting, we're still talking tactics, and uh, we're still playing the game mostly through Tabletop Simulator. But we've got a, a few things up our sleeves to talk about um, for those who are stuck at home and, and really want to get some hobby in. So uh, I might uh, let Dan take the lead for the first topic. Yeah, so the first thing that we thought we'd talk about is um, the tabletop simulator through Steam Workshop, as well as solo play and how you can simulate uh, an opponent. Um, it's used a lot in uh, shit and hex counter games where you essentially have a programmed artificial intelligence that runs the other side of the game and you play against that. Um, certain games do this really, really well. Um, Scythe in particular jumps to mind. The automation in Scythe is ridiculously good. Um, but you can do a similar thing with wargaming and it's, it's been around for years in different forms and different games do it differently. But you know, with bolt action, there's quite a bit you can do. But we'll get to that in a second. Um, one of the best things, ironically, that's come out of us being quarantined is learning how to use Tabletop Simulator. Um, mm. And I think all three of us have jumped on and either played games, built maps, uh, worked with different tables to, to get things, you know, looking a bit different, um, played with some of the effects and the physics in there. Um, it's It's been quite a good... Um, I, I don't, I've certainly flipped the table several times, but, um, yeah, <laughs> it's a very, it's a very easy platform to, to actually host a war game on. Mm. Uh, yeah, I definitely agree. Um, I think, uh, it probably takes one or two sessions to get used to the controls and get used to not accidentally, uh, flipping things around. I mean, the, the, the most apparent problem is, uh, if you in the game you you're highlighting units like you would in an RTS and you, you drag and drop them where you want, but that's also the same mechanic that you'd use to roll dice. So it's very easy to roll figures that you're meant to be rolling dice. But once you get past that sort of thing, the rest of it's really simple. And we're probably playing our games in the exact amount of time now that we would on the table. So um, on my screen, you guys won't be able to see it, but I've just brought up the um, Steam web page and basically this is tabletop simulator um it's a it's a video game that 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 emulates pretty much any tabletop game that you can think of so you know chess card games war games all that kind of stuff um and people basically make free mods um based on the um games that they like and 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 all those kind of things um so it's Right now, it's it's thirty dollars for for Australians. Um, sometimes it goes on sale for about uh, at fifty percent. 
Um, but all of the additional content in here it typically is free unless you want something that's produced by a developer. Um, and with Tabletop Simulator specifically, I've been seeing a lot of positivity coming from the actual developers. So initially I thought it would be something where people wouldn't want to get on board because it's kind of a replacement for the systems, but really there's no other way to do that right now. Um, but I've seen stuff come out out of, um, I think Warlord was was showing off a Blood Red Skies, uh, Skies mod the other day. Um, I've been working on the 148 Tactic mod directly with Bowetta War Games. Um, uh, Steve just put out a Fistful of Lead mod. So there's there's options to play a lot of different things. And it, I'm not seeing a backlash where people are going, hey, that, that's our property. We don't want you doing that. Um, there is, uh, I mean, there is a sense that you wouldn't necessarily want to you know, put the rule book in as a PDF and, and those kind of things. But, um, um, you know, most people just want to play the game and this is the only way they can do it right now. Um, and it's, you know, once, once you play a game or two, you, you'll get used to importing your lists in and, and tables and, and, and moving terrain around. And it's, um, I think it's really interesting. Um, as much as I want to get back to physical wargaming ASAP, I think that I'll still utilize this post-isolation uh, as well. Um, because, you know, there's, there's plenty of people that we interact with um, on the Bolt Action Australia page on Facebook, which are people we're never going to meet in our lives, but they're people that uh, we do talk to on pretty regularly. So I do want to get some of those games happening as well. And then we've we've got people all spread out through Perth who, who can you know only make it to our local club once every couple of months because they live three hours away. So you know it's a good 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 way for us all to keep in touch. Um, so I'm pretty happy with it. And uh, Gorchin, you've made a, a pretty awesome table for the club as well. I think the the real thing about Tabletop Simulator is that. Um, it doesn't play the game for you. It doesn't. It doesn't let you sort of play the game. It doesn't do the. Sorry. It doesn't let let you play the game on autopilot. It doesn't do all of the rule checks for you. It doesn't do the measurements and the dice rolling. And I think that's where a lot of um, a lot of the, the developers and the designers of these board games aren't getting involved is because they they realize that this is a this is a surrogate. This is a replacement because there's a lot of things about bolt action that it can't capture, such as building and modeling your own army, doing the, the painting, the basing, giving your army its own sort of vibe and character and making it really yours. You can't do that in Tabletop Simulator. And and as I said, the game doesn't, doesn't do the rules for you. It's just quite literally a simulator of a tabletop. So that includes the dice and the terrain and the models and some of the game aids like pin markers and that sort of thing. But none of that is is proprietary and none of that all of those things together is not sufficient to make bolt action. Bolt action is all the stuff that happens in between. And I think because of that, that is, that's why a lot of people aren't sort of getting in the way, you know, of, mm. of you know, they don't think the tabletop sort of getting in the way of their product, but, and also um, the flip side of that is, is from a cynical perspective is if these people are shrewd businessmen, they realize that if they got upset about tabletop simulator all they've done is shoot themselves in the foot from a marketing and, a, and an optics mm. perspective. So I think it's 
unfortunately, it's in their best interest to um, to not get involved in a negative way, and certainly not not in a lawsuit or anything like that. And that's that's sort of touches on the the main confusing point about tabletop simulator. There is no quote unquote DLC. There's no expansions. There's no multiple yeah. purchase points. A lot of the mods, when you look at the browser workshop, will say you need the original game to play. The thing that they're talking about here is those the module for Crossfire, the module for Flames of War, the module for Chain of Commander, Bolt Action, will not teach you how to play that game. You will mm -hmm. still need a copy of the rulebook, and you'll still need some other players and all that other sorts of stuff. And so that's where that's coming from. If you've got a rulebook, if you know how to play it, um, but you just can't physically play it nowadays, which is the, the reality, Tabletop Simulator is the way to go. And it's probably the best $30 I've spent on Steam in a long time. And my library is at almost 400 So I know what a good $30 <laughs> on Steam looks like. <laughs> I, um, I was a little bit, uh, I was on the fence about it. I didn't know if I wanted to really commit to the digital space when I was like, I can have one person over and play a game. That'll be fine. As the restrictions got more and more, um, and then it went on sale, I essentially said to Ali, I'm buying this. Um, if that's not okay, we're going to have to have talk about it. But um, she was very gracious, and she she was like, "Yeah, it's okay." But um, look, I'm I, I like that it simply provides, in terms of what we're talking about for bolt action, it provides uh, the mechanics to actually get a table and two armies together. You still have to know the rules. You still have to know how far things move, how far they shoot. You've got to know all of that stuff. Um, but it, it fulfills the purpose of being able to actually play the game. And one of the benefits is, like what you were talking about, Gaussian, with the developers not getting in the way, I think part of the reason for that as well that is in the developers of the game is because there's no money in it. It's all community mod. It's mm. like these guys are putting this stuff together because, you know, and the tables that we built for the club, they were built because, you know, there's no money in it for us, but we needed somewhere to play. Like just in the last two weeks since I've been on Tabletop Simulator with the bolt action stuff, the amount of content has almost tripled, um, mm. you know, which has been really cool. I think we've I lost. Oh, there we go. But, um... You there, Dan? We yeah, lost sorry, you for a moment. That's my internet. That's okay. Um, next week, it's it's coming. I've got an um, Yeah, that's okay. I just think it's really good. Yeah. Well, um, another thing that I think is really beneficial about this product in particular is trialing lists, um, and especially if yeah. you know halfway in between painting something and, and you know, maybe, maybe you, or, or you've got a box of your sprues and you're not sure which weapon options you want to go for, for your squads and how many troops you want in and all that kind of stuff. You can trial that stuff out instantly without committing to um, those loadouts. Um, and you can also go, Hey, uh, I'm really, you know, I'm in two minds. Do I want to buy British? Do I want to buy Japanese? And, and, and try those things out on tabletop simulator first and go, okay, Japs are the ones I want to go for. And this is the kind of list I want to do. Um, so we've been seeing that even today where people are like, we really want to buy into bolt action as soon as this COVID thing is over. Um, would you recommend mm. Brits? Would you recommend, what was it? It was Brits and Soviets. Yeah. Um, yeah, Brits and, and, Soviets. And, and we're like, well, A, we've got those armies in, at the club, so you can just 
play them and, and make your decision from there, but you could just do it on Tabletop Simulator today um, and, and then, you know, make your purchases from there based on what you like. Mm. Yeah, that's absolutely right. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's a very timely space to really explore Tabletop Simulator and, um, yeah, it's, it's come out pretty good. Um, interestingly, there's been stuff like this, this in the past, so m mostly Vassal's the popular product um, that, that's been out there for a while, but it's never really been expanded upon uh, for bolt action. There have been a few loose mods here and there, but it was never really ideal. Um, that's, that's more of a, a top-down board game emulator than um, 3D models and this kind of stuff. Um, also, there's no automation inherit in the bolt action mod, so they're not um, calculating modifiers, range, and this kind of stuff. You can add that programming in if you absolutely wanted to, but it's not necessary. And I think it's um, a strength to it because without that need for programming, you can physically design the tables with dragging and dropping elements that you want, and you can physically move the models and, and, and adjust your lists on the fly as you would do naturally in a physical space. So there's, it's, it's instant. You can go, I want to completely redesign this in a completely different um, makeup, and you don't need to know how to program that. You need to know how to drag and drop models and, and put them how it looks pretty to you, really. Um, so I, I, I think that's a huge strength. Um, I, I, don't, I don't want it to necessarily include automation. You can go that far if you need to, and I think some of the Star Wars mods and some of the Warhammer mods do. Um, but I, 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 think it, I think it's great just the way it is. I've played a few of the the 40k um, mods and stuff that are out there, and again, they're they're automating the stuff that like it's quality of life that you'd never be able to do in real life. Like it's not automating modifiers or dice rolls or tape measures. It's um, it automates like list building. So mm. you know if you've got if you're playing guardsman and you need like 60 copies of guy with the last gun, you don't make like sit there and go copy paste 60 times. You go, I want this model to represent guardsman with the last gun. I want this model to represent this type of unit. And so mm -hmm. that's where the automation comes in, which is which is the part that nobody likes doing anyway. Nobody likes mm -hmm. going, once you've made your list, nobody then goes, oh, I'm going to enjoy picking up 120 models and putting them in this case. Like, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's not the part <laughs> of the experience that anybody enjoys. Um, um, and so that's the stuff that's automated in the really uh, like concentrated, really massive communities. But the yeah, the, the stuff that's important, the stuff that makes the game, I've never seen any automation for it in 40K in any of the mods. On list building itself, um, it's actually pretty cool because you can import any PDFs, JPEGs, and whatever else as physical objects that you can stretch in size and, and bring up to your face, essentially. Um, and yeah, so I can go on to Easy Army, I can create my list, I can save it as a PDF and inject it into the game. And then you know I can pick and choose my models from there. Right-click them, click Save, and then go onto Gorchin's table that he's never seen these models before, and physically drag them on, and it just downloads on his PC and it's ready to go. Um, so that's really cool. Um, particularly in the 40k stuff, the one game that I actually had a look at Gorchin playing, which was really cool, is it could inject a Battlescribe file 
and make the models, right? Uh, you, so basically, it, it, it read, you'd put the battle scribe like uh, file onto a website and it spit out like a, a 10 character string. Uh, and you'd paste that into the mod and it would go, okay, here's your unique list of models. Tell me what you want to represent each one. And then it assigns all of the stats and the special rules mm -hmm. and the war gear to that model. So when you hover over them, it tells you what they're equipped with if it's not immediately obvious. Mm -hmm. um, and it, and so, you know, this, like I said, stuff like that's automated, which mm -hmm. again, you don't need to automate on a tabletop because either the, the, they're modeled or you have your list in front of you and your opponent can just look at your list. It's, mm -hmm. it's a non-issue. But I think, I think there's something we're sort of skirting around the foot here. Sorry, skirting around the, the issue here a little bit. Um, Dan, you've got some interesting ideas on how to play bolt action solo, from what I've heard. Yeah, so I've actually had a game going um, over the last three or four days, just slowly tinkering it away in my garage. Um, I was going to have some over for a game that didn't happen. I went, well, instead of wasting all the effort I put to setting it up, I'll play a game. Um, there are yeah, many ways on how to do solo simulation. Um, it depends on the scale of game. For example, way back in the early days of Kill Team, we had automated sentries, um, AI board games where your the units have set maneuvers that they'll do, um, things like that, as well as more random and chaotic elements. So they might move a random direction, uh, cast a random spell, or shoot a random gun, or whatever. Um, so that's one part of the simulation, but you actually have to mentally be able to either do one or two things. The way I do it, um, I get <laughs> my wife thinks I'm a little bit of a psychopath, but I can separate myself into two player minds. And so mm -hmm. the way that works is simply when I'm player one, I look at the board, I look at the order dice I've got, and I take the best possible action that player one could take to win the game. Mm -hmm. Then when I draw a player two dice, I do exactly the same process, but disregarding anything player one does. Mm. It's pretty difficult to explain that to people, but as soon as they watch on a tabletop, they go, that makes total sense, because you're just, you're essentially just playing the game as you would as if you were a player. Mm. You just have that interaction twice. The other way to do it is to um, essentially script your units so that they follow a predetermined path. So uh, if they are, say, 13, 14 inches away from an objective, they'd make an advanced move towards that objective. If they were, um, uh, if it was an anti-tank gun, it would scan the battlefield for a tank threat and either go on ambush or take a shot. So you can actually set those things up so that it, when a dice comes out, you randomly allocate which of the enemy units gets that dice and then you do the set action. So you, you can, I have done it, you can actually do that in Tabletop Simulator just using the one player and just have two armies loaded um it's not as fun it's always more fun to play with someone um and, and to, to the banter that happens naturally during a game um those of us that are obviously on this uh call you would have seen my panzer rise from the ashes uh, oh, yes. in, in that game that we played <laughs> you need to get painted um yeah the virtual demon panzer um yeah. it was on like 
what, five or six pins? Yeah. Ridiculous. Yeah. Um, it rolled it had absolutely one. no business doing any of that, Dan. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it basically, it, it showed how broken the dice generator was. Um, but, uh, you know, but those sorts of things are always better with another player, but there are options for simulation. And so those two methods, the scripting or uh, essentially taking the best possible action at any given time. Um, they're the two methods that I use mainly. I find that they give the the best result when trying to actually play against myself. Um, it's the most consistent. There's, um, I think there's something in that that every player can take to uh, every game, not just the ones that they play solo. The what you're trying to do there effectively is going, what is my objectives that I'm trying to achieve with my army? What are the strengths I'm trying to play to? What are the weaknesses I'm trying to cover up? Now, this may sound really obvious saying it out loud. Your opponent on any given day and any given match is doing the exact same thing. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes, you're spending all of your mental capacity, your willpower, whatever you want to call it, focusing on your side of the table. And that makes sense. But if you spend a little bit of time thinking, if I was my opponent and I've presented him the situation, what would I do in his place? Or what would I yeah. try to do with the next die, the dice after that? So if, if, you see, if it seems like this exercise in solo play is self-indulgent and, um, and not, not necessarily for yourself, you know, it's like, oh, that's not sort of the space that I play in. Try, try coming at it from perhaps a competitive way, or if you're not looking at it for fun, looking at it goes, how can I get better at this game? Because there, there are plenty of those people who like those board games and they like um, bolt action from that competitive setting. And this is an excellent way to practice. And if it sounds really absurd, trust me, people do it in, in every ring, not just on a tabletop. They do it on, on six by fours. They do it on rings surrounded by ropes. They do it in octagons. They're asking themselves, what is my opponent trying to do? When are they trying to do it? How are they trying to do it? And how can I stop that from happening? So the more that you can put yourself in your opponent's shoes, the better. Uh, and it, you know, th this is where it gets really like, I'm over here playing chess and you're playing checkers, is then, okay, what is my opponent going to do? What does he think that I'm going to do? And I'm going to do something even different. And so that's where you're interrupting their decision-making process. But you end up in, in a very uh, frustrating inception space. Uh, so try yeah. not to do that in a solo game because you'll probably just shut down and pass out. Mm. I think particularly for um, bold action, it's a little bit easier for to play this one-on-one -on -one with yourself because you have the random activations of the order dice. I find yep. that every single war game I've ever committed to painting and playing and trying to learn, you go through that quick starter rule book and you face off with the two armies a few times at your house before you, you man up and play a game at the club or, or whatever. Um, and whenever you do that, in a lot of those you-go-I-go games, you, 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 you're already going, I, I kind of like that turn, how that was playing out for that side so you know mentally i, I kind of want them to win but i think with that just just the order dice that, that makes it more interesting that those are individual combats rather than like a you know 40 or 50 minutes committed to one side of, of moving stuff and and, and 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 assaulting and attacking and then going okay i kind of 
feel like I want to play the tower side or something like that. That's just how. Yeah, I Yeah, that's feel. a good point. That's a good point, Jacob. It's um the the turn activation because of how it has uh, been structured. Um, it's you know it genuinely is good. Um, mm -hmm. and you can do those steps a lot easier. Just mm -hmm. clear that. Um, yeah, and I think there's a lot to be said for the random allocation as well. Um, so some of the things that I've been sort of working with my tactics stuff in the background, um, one of them is learn from the aftermath, which it's it's an overarching, uh, I guess, principle in wargaming or almost anything. When it all goes pear-shaped, when your opponent does something that completely takes you off guard, learn from that. Actually look at, you know, how did that occur? What was the gap in my battle plan, which basically meant that that was the linchpin that undid the whole thing? Um, I have learned more from my defeats, of which there have been several, um, you know, and and where my opponent has gone in and not just like the the close defeats, but like where I have been put through the washing machine, tumble dried, put out to dry, beaten with a stick, um, dropped on the ground again, stomped on like the whole box and dice. Um, you learn more by picking those games apart and going, mm. what really didn't work? Like where did it all fall down? Um, yeah, so it's quite good to reflect on them in those ways. So the chaotic element is also good to learn from, as Gorchin was saying. With you know, you, you, if you want to get better at the game, you do that by playing. That's ultimately the the bottom mm -hmm. line. So the more ways that you can play, the better you should get. Yeah. The the caveat to that, of course, is is something you touch on there, Dan. Is is intentional practice, right? So there's absolutely nothing wrong playing the game to have a good time. There's I don't think anybody's saying otherwise, um, except me. I don't have any fun. Um, but what? <laughs> but if you want to get better at something, it's not just playing it. It's about having some time to debrief or to analyze mm. or to do something, do something about that. So one of the things that I really like to do is is um, partly because the guys at the club are, are just good guys to hang out with, um, is after the game, just have a chat to your opponent about the game. I know that sounds really obvious, but try to do like a turn-by-turn -turn account. And just because mm -hmm. there are things here that, um, you know, I will sit there and I'll try to think about what my opponent's thinking and I will be wrong most of the time. But on, the, on that odd activation die that you're right, that might give you the advantage. And it, it helps give me some insight. It's like, what are the things that I, I did wrong? What are the things that I did right? You know, I had this, I remember one game I played against Nick and um, I was, uh, I think we were playing um, a slightly different scale. We were playing like company level bolt action with, with Flames War Minis and stuff. But yeah, I just, I just did this like massive infantry charge right through the middle, like machine guns and infantry. And I was just running around um, my Shermans in, in like in pairs, just completely and utterly in in every angle, just have something that he had to deal with. Now, he could have very easily defeated all the detail, but he was just. I remember after the game, he was just like, "I just didn't know where to start." Yeah, <laughs> and I was like, "Okay." <laughs> so, so that strategy worked. Um, yeah. But there was a lot of other things in that game that really didn't work, um, <laughs> like trying to have long range firefights against Germans. It's just a bad move um, altogether, and and trying to go toe to toe with tanks, but. 
those after action reports and having that intentional practice like you can absolutely have fun in your game and not take it very seriously but if you want to learn and get better the best time to do it is in the game the second best time is immediately afterwards try to yep. maybe you know if you if you're kind of raw and emotional some people don't like don't take getting dumpstered very well which is understandable but but think about it until it's yeah <laughs> think about it until it's 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 sort of normal and you can think about it clearly and then at that point start analyzing the decisions um if your conclusions are the game is busted and it's shit and it's unbalanced that could be a reasonable conclusion most of the time keep going keep thinking <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah i think that's very good feedback watching um so i think then one of the biggest pitfalls and this is a bit of a segue into our next topic one of the biggest pitfalls in solo play and simulation is how do you get around pre-measuring like you're literally measuring both sides of the table right so and i, I want to preface this by going um what we're going to talk about is just simply our views and opinions on pre-measuring it's not the be all end all we're not sold one way or the other. Um, we don't think you're a bad gamer if you do. We don't think you're a bad gamer if you don't. This is simply talking about the fact that pre-measuring is a thing. Um, so when you are pre-measuring essentially both sides of the table, you have to make a choice to either use that knowledge or try hard to not connect the dots. Um, and that's something which in most cases when you're playing with yourself um, or playing bolt action against yourself, just accept you're gonna know what the ranges are. It's actually gonna speed the game up and you don't have an opponent that's gonna care because it's you. Um, so don't feel that you have to try to hide the measurements of things um, from yourself in simulation. It slows it down and it's not worth the mental effort of trying to do that. Just simply go, I'm gonna accept that I'm gonna measure something one way and that's gonna make me know what the other way is. Mm -hmm. So there's, um, on the pre-measuring front, there's been a little bit of a, uh, Fewer recently about pre-measuring and bolt action, and it's it sort of comes from uh, this idea that, that in the rulebook it says you can't pre-measure. Um, uh, okay, fair enough, you can't. Um, you're under a, a a social contract uh, verbal when you play a game of bolt action that you don't pre-measure. Yet somehow the the recent Tiger Fear FAQ has made people suddenly realize that oh, we can pre-measure all the time whenever we're sitting against. A German tank that's got tiger fear. That's exactly what that means, right? Well, not really. <laughs> so, yeah, this this has, and the three of us have talked about this before, off just so everyone knows. It, but um, pre-measuring actually existed before tiger fear was a thing. Before tiger fear actually existed as a rule, um, it actually existed before bolt action was a game um, because. The mechanics that you innately use to move your models around the table allows you to pre-measure with simple mathematics. So it's it's something which a lot of people are jumping up and down about because Tiger Fear specifically says you're allowed to pre-measure. 
I would encourage those people to read the rule properly because you measure from the tank out, not from your unit through the tank. So you're only ever going to confirm what a 12-inch bubble around a tank looks like. Um, but there's a whole bunch of things that go into this. Like, you know, we've talked about before, um, you play war games long enough, you can eyeball distances on the table. Mm -hmm. So you don't necessarily pre-measure by dragging the tape measure across the table. Mm -hmm. But you know someone moves on 12, you move on 12, guaranteed they're 24 inches apart unless you're playing on a table that's longer than four foot. Um, that's just math. Like there's, you're not pre-measuring, but you are. It's, it's mm. just innately what you can do. And, you'll, and that's, only a, one, that's only one example. You'll witness that quite a bit um, in different ways. You'll have people that, that will identify how big a terrain tile is, people that might measure where, uh, uh, how far a terrain piece is, and, and not necessarily any interactions with the models and, and their units they have, maybe even pre-game. Um, and, you know, I, I, I don't have any viewpoints on that either way. Um, I, I, I figure if you, you've, you've mapped that out in your mind or if you've, you've had a look at it, I, I think, you know, if that's part of your strategy, it is. Uh, you know, uh, 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 soldiers would be looking at maps. They'd be trying to figure things out before the battle happened. Um, so I, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't see that it's a massive issue. And it's, I can't imagine that there are too many specific scenarios where it's all that important. There are, you know, there are, there are times where you may make the charge and you may not. And there may be times where you're, you're just out of SMG range and you're not. But it's not a game-changing scenario anyway. Um, so I, I, I haven't had a problem with it and I kind of just don't care. And, and that's, and that's sort of where I sit as well. Like it's, um, I prefer not to, because I like the challenge of trying to estimate the ranges on the battlefield. Um, but if my opponent actually said, no, look, you know, I really do want to pre-measure, um, because it makes it easier for me to play the game. I'd be okay with that. You know, I'd be making it easier for my opponent to play the game with me, um, which means I get to play the game. Um, it means that there's no confusion about distances, so that's always a good thing. Um, and, you know, I'm able to estimate ranges quite well, so that's a, that's a tool in my arsenal that I use when I play games. But if my opponent really isn't good at that, it is a little bit of an unfair advantage for me to force that upon them. Mm -hmm. And so I'm happy to go either way. Um, most of my players that I normally play with are happy just to do it without pre-measuring and we're good to go. But, you know, it's... So, for example, um, you can pre-measure without pre-measuring. Um, we gave the example of movement. Uh, there's the example of knowing how far a terrain piece is from the back edge you can actually get the ranges of terrain whilst moving your models, which helps you understand scale on the battlefield. That's a way that you can interpret range. Indirect fire weapons allow you to interpret range because you literally measure out to the distance. Um, and so you can get a rough idea how far away something is. Um, 
obviously tiger fear has come through um, to be 12 inches. But you have other ways that people don't think of. Um, templates, smoke markers, barrage, um, airstrikes, like anything that lets you measure probably more than four inches, I would say, on the table somewhere. Yeah, You can use that as a relative guide to estimate range on the table. There's a couple of um, relative guides that, that I like to use. Um, some of this is just a little bit of rote learning and some of it sort of seems, again, um, self-evident when you say that out loud. Typically in bolt action, I think the Warlord games bases are actually 25 mil. Um, most of the bases that you buy for this scale are around 25 mil. That means each base is an inch. If you stick a 10-man squad um, and, you know, the, you just sort of pick them up and blob them onto the table and they're sort of, uh, you know, five across and then five across, that's a that's a five-by-two-inch rectangle right there. You can mm -hmm. sort of mentally copy-paste that across the board to get some distances. Another um, rough example, uh, a rough bit of guideline is that, you, you know, the short edge of a board is 48 inches which means if you've moved an infantry squad in from that table edge and they've moved one off the other table edge, you're within LMG range, more or less, because there's six yeah. inches to that side, six inches to that side, you're at 36. So the general rule of thumb with bolt action is turn one, LMGs may be a BAR if you've got some very aggressive positioning in range. Turn two, that's when rifles start activating and really becoming dangerous. Turn three, that's when SMGs start being in, in range. Now that's... That's, of course, some very rough rules of thumb. Mm. Um, and it all it depends on a dozen other factors like terrain and transports and, and a whole bunch of other things. But those are some things to keep in mind. If you're, and it's something you can take into list building. If you're if you're planning on dishing out a lot of damage very early onto the game, you've got to be packing 36 inches or plus weapons. Yeah. Otherwise, they're, they're yeah. just going to hide. In, and then, you know, bolt action, of course, you've got cover and all the other mechanics as well to bring into play. But... Yeah, if you want to deal damage early, you need to bring 36+. plus. If you want to deal damage on turn two, that's when you can start getting away with rifles and BARs. Yeah. Um, just a super Absolutely. basic one for, for those getting new into it. Just just um, seeing what the previous round of combat was with, you know, if rifles were in range and you, you can get an estimate of how far you're going to have to move up for SMGs and that kind of stuff. And um you know, you'll 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 easily pick up that you know you just took some shots from from X. You you'll you've got an idea of how far it is for you to get from it from other units on the field, um, and you'll you'll just pick that up and go ah I know that that's about twelve inches away or something like that. So um, yeah, I again I don't care. <laughs> um, I don't I don't think it needs the um, hundreds of posts that are there on Facebook and otherwise at the moment. I would agree. Um, so, but yeah, Tiger Fear needed some changes, so there you go. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess, I, I guess the um, and and just I guess quickly on the Tiger Fear thing, um, that was less about pre-measuring, which has become the result <laughs> of the change. Um, you know, Tiger Fear was being done because of board control. You know, mm. um, you, you, it was putting something at the back of the field that had board control over everything and that's not how the game's designers wanted tiger tanks to be used um again arguments two and four in terms of competitive use and whether or not big tanks are worth it in competitive play 
but the the counter argument is that bolt action isn't designed competitively so um you know, for example recently juggernaut has set up their second version of the rules which i've had a chance to look over um and in wa we've got a pretty healthy discussion at the moment about you know what do we want to adopt out of that do we want to look at it is there a need i genuinely think it'd be good for us to um firstly at least try it out play some home mm-hmm. games or tabletop simulator with it and you know I'm, I'm not opposed to making changes to see what works and what doesn't the juggernaut guys are totally happy for people to either take none of it or all of it but they've they've done things to push it into a competitive direction a little bit more than what it has right now um but i you know it's good that we've got that it's good that we've got something to to work on um they dealt with tiger fear completely differently to how i would have and they simply removed it and put a discount on um on the big tanks because they wanted to see big tanks on the battlefield to a certain degree that makes sense just going to bring up the PDF in a moment and just have a quick skim through because I, I actually haven't looked at it yet. But um, what, I think, are, what are the takeaway changes? My takeaway um, uh, on the whole is that, yeah, I can I can see what they're going for. But for me, um, it felt that, like, you know, on one part of, of any given page of that of the, the Juggernauts sort of format, you saw some things that were like, okay, this is, I can see where they're going. This is, you're, you're stratifying, you're adding points costs to things that didn't have them. You're adding slots and, you know, you're uh, you're sort of rebalancing and, and, and re-bean counting bolt action so it's more competitive. It's like, I get that. And then um, on the flip side, you've got, oh, you know, this is, we don't see enough big tanks, so we're just going to make the first one that you buy just cheaper. Yeah, Panther and, minus and seventy-five. Like, wow. Yeah. Yeah, or we're just going to give you free LMGs if you get ten-man squads. Now, I don't. Again, I don't, in principle, disagree with any of that. And like I said, um, in in many of the comments that have gotten some less than positive attention in some cases, is that it, these things need to be tried, and we absolutely need to give them a go. It's just for me, it's a, it's a little inconsistent. You know, they. Mm. I, I've read to some some of their comments that you know they've got. BARs are really strong, um, and then they didn't point cost them up, but then they point yeah. costed down, which they for the tanks, which they thought were underutilized and is sort of implied to be over expensive, and they give you free LMGs again, sort of implying that LMGs are more expensive than they should be. Um, and so there's, the, for me, it seems like there was there's a core competitiveness in that that is also. At, unfortunately for me, the vibe that I'm getting is at odds with the, this is also fun, how we like to play bolt action. It doesn't need to be either. It can happily be both. But for me, my takeaway there was it sort of needs to do one or the other, and I'm not sure which one it's doing just yet. Yeah, and I think that's fair. It's um, having looked at, like, one of the changes, because um, I guess the thing is as well, everyone has their own idea about what, the best change looks like and so i'm always very hesitant to deliberately shoot someone's idea out of the sky because ultimately it's the same as me shooting my own idea out of the sky with no testing no talking to developers no talking to other people um, it's one of the reasons that my mission packs and the missions that go in them are fairly solid if they're brand new is because i don't just cowboy it in and go this is what we're going to do um, but you know the MMG teams, medium machine gun teams, um, 
you know, them being able to do an automatic pin plus a pin if they hit, um, that's fairly powerful. Um, not, I don't think it's unreasonable. I'd probably would have done D3 or even D2 pins um, in total, but that's just a different tact. One of the glaring omissions that I think they've missed is heavy machine guns stayed at three shots. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you start talking about discounting uh, German tanks. Um, what about all of the other heavy tanks across any other other forces that uh, some of them don't have special rules? That's fine. The entire American battle line does with gyro stabilized if they're veterans, but there's no discount there. Um, so you're innately, again, not saying it's right or wrong, um, but innately, if you're adjusting one part of the balance to account for something that's foreseen as not effective, but then you don't adjust the other side either in points up or points down uh, or modifying the, the rule you're still creating imbalance within a competitive set. So, and I would always say that, you know, if they turned around and went, well, we haven't modified heavy machine guns because no one takes them for 25 points anyway, <laughs> then surely that becomes a reason to consider changing it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I think you, you've said it much more succinctly than I, I did, Daniel. It's, um, you, you know, I, I don't, uh, I don't mean this in a detractory way, but as you said, they've sort of they've pulled levers for some nations with with one set of framework, but then not applied that same thinking and pulled the same lever somewhere else. Um, yeah. And and I think that that for me was the it was was the thing that sort of kept cropping up. I was like, I didn't disagree with any of the changes individually, but as a whole, mm. it seems yeah, it seems that there's something not not putting a pulling it all together. Um, and uh, yeah, understandably I'm, though, there are like, uh, you know, yeah, how many nations course. are there? Books and theaters and all that <laughs> kind of stuff. You can't do it all in one go. But um, yeah, I know what you're saying. Yeah, and and the thing that yeah, I the the automatic pin on a machine gun, regardless of if it hits, I think for me is 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 it quite it's not in and of itself as you said it's powerful but it's not game breaking i think for me it just sets a very dangerous like precedent it's like okay we did this once in this little rule tweak why don't we just start putting an automatic pin here why don't we start putting an automatic pin there um yeah and and that that to me that was the only part that i went oh i'm i'm really not sure about that I like mm. that they're doing something with MMGs and HMGs. They need something to be relevant. We, I think we've said this probably a dozen times on this podcast so far. But yeah, yeah I'm not sure if an automatic pin is the right way to go. And and one of the things that I find, uh, this is bolt action general moving away from, from sort of a specific fence, is that, is that penetration doesn't reduce cover modifiers for that specific shooting. And and you know, I was thinking, I was like, oh, that's that's a weird thing that didn't change HMGs. Why don't you just make HMGs turn hard cover into light cover and light cover into no cover? And then I was like, ooh, but HMGs are only plus one. What does that mean for plus two, plus three, plus four? And it mm. and I read that and I was like, okay, that's that's actually quite a a tricky and nuanced way to go about that. Um, so yeah, I mean, I don't know what the solution is, of course, but 
again, it's just that idea that it's like they chose to pull that lever, but then didn't pull it everywhere else for the same sort of ideas. Hmm. And look, I still want to try it. I still want to give it yeah. a go. Um, but we're Absolutely. in our meta, in our meta, in our scene, um, we've obviously got a different lens that we view that through. Um, I know that there's a couple of key members of our community that they want that competitive edge. And so this is quite attractive to them. And so, you know, that might mean that we do run a couple of events specifically using Juggernaut and, you know, making it clear to everyone that this is what we're going to use, the, you know, or, or we might adjust it slightly so that it fits what we want, but still hitting that T. But um, look, I think um, I like seeing um, fan-made, supplemental information and and um, different ways to play the game it's refreshing it keeps the game scene alive um, and more importantly it lets you know that there's different ways to play there's different ways yeah. to actually pull these things together and that grows the community so i think that's really good um so we've talked a lot about juggernauts house rules which are based on changes to units but they've got two other parts to this document as well. So um, with the selector, you've got this ability where depending on the amount of points that you spend on a particular slot, you can uh, unlock additional um, spends in those slots. So, you know, you know, if you, if you, you spend a certain amount of money in a, in a tank slot, you can upgrade to two tanks, something like that. Um, so yeah, it says three points for a tank. Yes. Okay, so yeah, you yeah. you have to actually unlock it in multiple multiple um, sections to get that. Um, then there there's some information on uh, selector units and 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 sort of adding those in um, where they don't quite exist in a generic platoon. Uh, and then they've got some modifications on. Um, well, actually, no, these these are entirely new missions that. That replace some of the rulebook ones. Um, yes, so there, there are some, yeah, there are some there. modifications. So that that that's really cool. Um, yeah, some custom missions in there that they've done, um, <laughs> which are pretty solid. I had a look at those, obviously as a TO. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I think the the selector stuff is quite interesting um, because it's trying to again leaning towards that competitive element. Um, there's some things in there that I sort of I get what they're trying to do, but I don't think it's because what they're trying to do is essentially go, there's one selector, and if you want to have all the goodies in that selector, it's going to cost you in these uh, these slot points. And the slot points you get are driven by the size of the game. Mm -hmm. So in a standard 1,000-point game, um, I think it's one per 200 points. So yep. you'd end up with five five slot points. So if you want two tanks, that's going to be three slot points, as well as the points for the unit itself that, that are separate. Um, so call it uh, credits or call it, yeah, points that you can spend extra on your on your list to unlock slots. Um, but they've got it on some very, I guess, they must be very meta-intensive units. Like, for example, they've got uh, an assault engineer squad with a flamer, for every for every one of those squads you want to take after the first, it's two slot points. I'm not going to comment obviously on the ratio of points versus effectiveness because I think they probably have done that well. Um, but there's some 
there's some drastic things that are missing from that list in my book. Um, the the shoots and a mess are put in as a basic infantry squad. They can just take uh, the free LMG. They don't have to. Um, yeah, they they still don't have to pay for that from Western Desert. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They get that sixty point, but they're not included for a multiple choice. And so um, essentially, you can have five squads full of shoots and pay for the extra. Uh, let's say five points worth to include five more infantry squads, which are just five more squads worth of shoots. And all of a sudden you have almost 11 squads worth of shoots and with free LMGs. Mm. That's a lot of infantry. That's a lot of light machine guns. Um, obviously the points have to go with that as well. But but for us in our scene, um, we have generally done generic platoon or theater selector. We don't, we don't cross over those orphan units. We simply say those orphan units belong to those theatre selectors. So you can't take them unless you're taking that theatre selector. Um, again, different metas, different setups. Um, I also put some restrictions on every single event that I run. So you can't run more than two flamer teams. Yeah, You're just not allowed to. So that stops the assault engineer squad being a problem because you can only have Two flamer teams. I'm with you. Um, I think we've we've gone over Juggernaut. Definitely, um, super interesting. This stuff is coming out, um, but mm. we yep. need to try it, and we haven't yet. This we've we've only discovered it what this week. Um, Two days and, ago. And and this might be the second variant of the actual rules, um, but I'm. Um, I'm kind of new to, to learning about the Juggernaut pod, podcast itself. Um, all right. Uh, what else have we got to talk about? Dan, have you got any of your tactic stuff you're ready to, to share with us just yet? Yeah, I was just having a quick look at that. Um, I, I probably want to think about um, talking about the ambush order. Is probably the next thing. So there's a couple of uh, ambush tactics that are out. As long as you guys have time, <laughs> I'm all in. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I won't read it word for word. I'll just summarise what I've written up. But um, uh, ultimately, ambush is probably that earphone was really getting annoying. I don't know if you all saw me try to push that back in, but. Oh. Um, <laughs> Ambush is by far one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful order that you can give a unit within a game. Um, that's basically broken down to the fact that you can give them the order and so they're able to drop a pin on the unit by successfully passing it. And you proactively set that order up to react to an opponent. But you can take those reactions before your opponent literally gets to do anything. And you can either um, attempt to take a shot when they move uh, or go down. Uh, and obviously, you can hold the ambush order across multiple turns if you chose to. Now, it, that sort of gives you an idea of how powerful it is. But then I've actually broken that down a little bit further and go, well, let's analyze those different stages, those different elements. Now, if you guys have questions, feel free to jump in so that this isn't a monologue. <laughs> um, but this is definitely an education piece because ambush is still something that I don't see a lot of players really using to its full potential. Um, yeah, Gorchin's got his hand up there. 
Um, so ambush is not something that you do on turn one or even really on turn two um, because you have to position your unit first. Um, once you have positioned the unit, that's when the ambush order becomes a viable option. It does depend on the target that you want to hit. It does depend on the position of where you are because you do need good line of sight to be able to actually make good use of that ambush order. And because you're going to be probably stationary, you're going to want to make sure that your firing unit is in some sort of cover. You don't particularly want to ambush out in the open. Um, I haven't been ambushed, but none of the ambushes that I watch in movies, read in books, read in <laughs> accounts, none of them were necessarily just in the open waiting for it to happen. So it's quite thematic that you stick to terrain. It's also very good in the game to stick mm. to terrain. Um, so then we get to, let's say we've now got a unit on ambush. You're trying to target a unit of infantry. Um, you get to your trigger points, which is either performing a type of move. Um, so it needs to be any form of move action. Um, believe it actually includes consolidating from combat, so you can still snipe oh, wow. someone off if they get a, a cheeky charge in. Does it also um, include recce? Uh, so the ambushing shot will trigger on recce but your recce vehicle could still potentially get away. So, mm. um, and the reason, I, the reason I say that is if the recce vehicle has activated prior to the, the unit going into ambush, and so it's moving and you declare that you're gonna stop it, it's had an order assigned to it, so it can't use its recce reaction, but you have to take the shot from where you choose to stop it. So if you don't stop it in open terrain and it's got cover and whatever, it's probably going to survive and then you just continue its move. That's just more ambushing in general. You have to choose your timing of where to stop the, the target. Um, but you can use it against recce. It works much better against a recce vehicle when you have two units on ambush with overlapping fields of fire. So you fire the first one at the end of the turn at the recce vehicle because the recce vehicle has been waiting to be shot. It declares a recce. You then trigger the second ambush that's got the crossfire. The recce vehicle can't recce from that, and so it takes the hit. Or if you hit, it takes the hit. Um, yeah, recce sort of undoes ambush a little bit because it's specifically designed to be able to hit and run away, um, or more specifically in bolt action, run away from being hit. Um, but yeah, that, that's yeah, just an interaction at that point. So that's that's um, that's where I was thinking. I was like, if I've, you know, typically uh, at a one thousand or twelve fifty for my US list, I've got a light howitzer and a Sherman. So I'm usually using the Sherman to to take out any armor that's a particularly big threat, and I'm using my light howitzer either to go door knocking on you know seven uh, eight toughness vehicles, or I'm using it mm -hmm. for pins of buildings or whatever. And and naturally, of course, Reckie's um, a pain in the butt for anybody who's trying to take out a vehicle, and, but then again, also recce you only only f typically find it on you know seven or lower. I think there's an I think there's an eight that's got recce. Uh, anyway, I think, but basically you can hit it with light houses. So I was just wondering, you know, could I just you know stick my howitzer in ambush, shoot at the thing with the Sherman, force it to move, and then knock it out with the howitzer? And that was something I'd never actually thought of doing. Mm. Um, is I yeah. think uh, 
one of my challenges that I'm having with bolt action is, of course, moving from an go, you go, I can activate my whole force at the whole time. I'm slowly adapting to this, this auto dice mechanic. One of the things I'm definitely not doing outside of Snap 2 is thinking about my second and third order dice that I haven't pulled out yet. Yeah. Which, of course, this, that ambush tactic requires. Right mm, for you, yes, for you to double ambush a recce vehicle, you need to be thinking not about this order dice and not about your opponent's next one, but your one that comes after, which could be four or five dice later. It could be straight away. Yes, and that's where the advantage of um, I'd actually probably do it the other way. I would actually lead with your howitzer with a direct fire shot on the recce vehicle, and use the sherman with the anti tank profile. Uh, unless you're using a 105, in which case they're both howitzers, so it's fine. But sure. Um, but yeah, lead. But go follow up with the Sherman. Um, the benefit of the ambush order is you deliberately you know that recce vehicle is not going to move until you declare a shot at it. What you can do is essentially force that recce vehicle. Uh, if you really want to push ambush, you force that recce vehicle to actually take its move, so you actually don't because it's going to get to its dice eventually, right? Mm. So that your opponent's probably going to hold off till it's the very last dice, and it'll be the last thing that they move, and you'll have two, one howitzer and one Sherman on ambush going, go on, we dare you to move. We've got two shots. We'll yeah. make it happen. Like it's gonna, it's gonna go down. So you don't even have to trigger it as soon as that Sherman dice comes out of the bag. You can actually wait right till the end of turn, providing that it doesn't change anything else in the game plan or what you need to accomplish. You can really basically put it down and go, that's that's a dead recce vehicle. Like you're gonna avoid one shot by moving, but then what's gonna happen is I'm gonna stop you from moving with my second shot, which may immobilize you or keep you there. Um, if you survive that recce shot, you then have to stop for the second uh, ambushing shot um, because your recce response has been interrupted from the first ambushing shot. So you generally want some form of damage off that that second ambushing shot so that it holds it in place because if they do survive they can still zip off and finish the recce move but um that's a yeah, really interesting way to counter recce's um because i am always fielding them and i'm always stuck at that dilemma how am i activating this unit do i use it to bait to get some some shot that never happens or do i actually use it as a unit that it needs to to do something up the field and that recce really dictates the move on, like like it, it it almost forces me to to be unable to make a decision even further. Yeah, exactly. And that's um, sorry, just adjusting yeah, my camera no, here because right. it's There was this. Um, I plugged the charger in and it's wrecked it. <laughs> there, there was this interesting uh, tactic I was playing uh, against one of the other strong um, strong players here in the put scene, Matt Castles, was playing a game against him earlier. And uh, and he's sort of taken, taken a, an effort to, to teach me to get better at bolt action. And he had this sniper in this great position. It was just locking down this whole side of the field. It was the top of turn one. We were playing meeting engagement. And you know, I'm sitting there thinking, I was like, I was like, what do I bring on to deal with the sniper? You know, he's he's in the middle of the board, so he's twenty four inches away. If I bring an infantry squad on, sure, you know, we're gonna I'm gonna eventually chase him out, right him out of the hole. And Matt was like, just roll on your Sherman and hit the building with H E. And I was like, 
but that's a waste of the show. And he's like, sure, you could sling a shot at my tank and we can get into sanctified tank combat, or you could just take out an order dice right there. What's the sniper yeah. going to do against the show? Mm. It's going to open up the whole side of the field. And it was just something I'd never thought about. And um, it, it's this, yeah, the, those challenges that I'm having is that you use armor to take out armor, um, which I should know better than that because I've read the U.S. tank doctrine manuals of World War II. Um, and <laughs> and the, the other thing is, it's just like, you, you know, use your dice in pairs because you have 10 of them on a thousand point game. And these yeah. these are actually some things that I'm really struggling to wrap my head around um, or to actually even just think about. Like when she said it, it makes perfect sense. It's just, why would I ever try to use more than one dice at a time? Daniel? That doesn't make any sense. Yeah, yeah. And that's that chess and, and background. <laughs> the um, the the whole reason that I'm doing these tactic articles stuff is so you essentially we can uncover these things that I naturally think about. Like my my brain goes a million miles an hour tossing all these things over, and I realized about I started this probably two years ago. I realized about two years ago. Not everyone thinks like I do when it comes to war games, and some of the stuff that I that I process, and I'm doing it so naturally because I've been doing it for years, people just don't think about, and it would really benefit them and help them play better to think about it. Um, so, because I mean, the other big thing that makes ambush so effective is when you flip it to those fire orders, you're stationary, so you don't ever take that minus one for movement. And generally, you're going to hit something that's within half range. The odds of you actually getting hits and damage with your uh, units that haven't then moved are just better. They are just flat out better. Um, that's why the Finns, especially Matt Castles, who plays his Finns quite well, the Finns can be so dangerous because he will deliberately just advance and go down into ambush with the recon squads. And then you're stuck between a rock and a hard place because you to go, I need to advance on the objectives, but I know I'm going to get hit for like threes or fours. Um, you know, if I've got hard cover, maybe fives, but I'm not taking, he's not going to take range penalty. He's not going to take movement penalty. Um, that, and I can't go down because I'm advancing as part of the order. So you're not going to get any better than that anyway. Um, it, it becomes a very dangerous sort of um, interaction to find yourself in. Um, but that, I guess, goes to, you know, how can ambush then be used to control the board? Um, because you can essentially, and I've done it before, um, I've done it with a, a medium machine gun. Everyone writes them off as horrible, absolutely horrible, not, not worth taking. I'd rather spend five points on five individual rifles and be able to move and fire, run them up the field, do all that sort of stuff. The first comment I would have for that is, the MMG teams can actually still move relatively quickly. They're not as slow as what people think. Um, but if you put a five-shot gun on ambush, covering a choke point or a road or um, an intersection or, um, I mean, even just point it at an objective and put it on Overwatch with, with the ambush, your opponent's going to think twice because, again, you don't take that minus one to, for movement. And so your opponent's going to come out and have five shots that are going to essentially be looking at threes or fours to hit. You can't go down. You you might get hard cover, but hard cover is essentially just going to make it um, fives unless you're at long range. Benefit of the machine gun, really long range. So move that thing up the field at the front line, 
point it at an objective and put it on ambush for the rest of the game. Your, your opponent's then going to look at it and going, it's five dice. Do I really want to risk the pin and potentially the damage, considering that I've already done my order, and so I'm going to be stuck with that order next turn with, with needing to do a test. Um, but it also means that if that unit was going to shoot at something, it's not effective straight away. You're, you're minus one straight up. Um, that's quite a significant uh, amount of board control you can put down. But the actual strength of your ambush is entirely dependent on how far away you are from the target and the number of shots that you're firing. Um, the penetration of the, of the weapon makes little difference. It's actually a number of shots and how far away because they're the prime indicators for those hit modifiers. The further away you are, the harder it is to hit something. The more shots you have, the higher your chance of hitting something. That's, again, simple ratios with math. Um, but I normally, I've got a formula that's in the document, which I won't bother reading out, but it's essentially that concept that I just talked about of, of leveraging shots and distance to assign a rating out of five against the strength. So if we looked at a, a unit of 10 Soviet SMG troops that are within six inches of a target unit, um, and the target unit is not in cover, for example, um, 20 shots, six inches away, that's going to cause a lot of damage. Like those guys don't take movement penalty, so they would have got to that six inch range with no difference. Um, maybe they've just hopped around the side of a fence to negate the cover bonus that was being applied to the unit. So they're going to hit on threes or twos, um, you know, quite, quite dangerous and convert straight up for damage. Conversely, if you take a light howitzer that is targeting the same squad, but they're 34 inches away, you have a single shot, you're 34 inches away, so you're over half range, and you're only going to be able to place that, uh, that gorgeous marker down on that unit if they don't go down as a response to being targeted. If they choose to go down, you're looking at sevens. Like it's just, you're, you're so unlikely to hit. It's like 0.01% or something stupid. Um, like it's just, it's just not going to happen as a reliable mechanic um, if you're on ambush. Uh, if it was a tank, it's completely the other way around because the tank can be hurt by light howitzer, doesn't care about submachine guns at all. Um, and so the rating is, is different in that space. But when you're setting things up, what you're trying to do, if you're putting your stuff into ambush, you're trying to find the choke points in the terrain. You're trying to find where the approach points to the objectives are. You're looking at, is there a unit in the building that's going to need to commit to the battlefield? Um, are there units in outflank that you can just sit in ambush on the side? Um, do I have something like snipers are good in ambush? I don't use mine in ambush enough. I do a lot of um, just sort of just sort of single um, shots with the sniper. Um, I probably need to have them on ambush more, but a, a, a team like a Panzerstreck team comes around the corner to get a shot at your Sherman. The sniper would be able to take them out on ambush relatively well. It's a mm. three plus to hit. They take no other modifiers. Um, now, we all know snipers roll ones and twos, but putting that aside, yeah, you know, um, once they get the hit, even if they just get the hit and no kill, the conversion rate of that 
Panzerschreck team to, to actually kill that tank is significantly less. You've given them that pin, and that pin's going to be in effect when they take their shot. Wow. Yeah. So just, um, yeah, it sounds, again, it's going to sound really stupid saying it out loud coming out of my mouth. I've never thought of putting the ambush order on my sniper, um, yeah. which is, again, <laughs> Real stupid thing just to say. Bloodthirsty. You want that kill right there and then when you got the dice. That's, Everyone that's wants to go for the observer kill on turn one. Everyone wants it. Yeah. Uh, it, uh, no, I'm I'm much more honourable. My tank still tanks. My sniper still snipers. <laughs> um, but so, so I think there's there's um it's good. That speaks much more about uh me not knowing, me forgetting that there's six sides to that order of dice and that six side being ambush. Um, yeah, but the the thing that that you sort of touched on there, and some heuristics for for people out there who are wondering how to do some um, some quick mental math. People, as a as a general rule of thumb, people understand percentages better than than out of sixes. So to give you an idea, every plus one on a dice is roughly sixteen percent. So the difference between yes. um, a two plus and a three plus is sixteen percent less likely. And so you just now, of course, it doesn't add up perfectly because three sixteens makes forty eight. Um, but uh, yeah, as a general rule of thumb, four plus fifty fifty. Um, five plus is a thirty two percent chance of success. Six plus is a sixteen percent chance of success. Mm -hmm. So when you're asking yourself, do I move to overcome range or something like? So moving to overcome range is a bad example because it's plus one minus one. But for some other things to think about is is you, what are you actually gaining? And a lot of times, the the decisions that I've seen my opponents get stuck on when it comes to bolt action, it's a difference of 16%. So they will be, yep. and and this is the thing, like, again, if we say most of your opponents are, are regular, it's always better to get an extra hit die than it is to get a plus one penetration because plus one penetration is only an extra 16% chance to convert um, a kill but an extra hit die is typically either an extra 50% or 32% chance if they're veteran to get a kill. So it's almost always better to get a second shot or get an additional shot die, whether it's another team shooting or anything like that, than it is to get a plus one penetration. That That's something to think about in list building, which is why I think HMGs are in such a poor spot, really. Um, because I think if Horrible. you... Like, I've now I haven't actually done the math, so if anybody, so please feel free to call me out on this. But I think, uh, assuming like most of the time your MMG actually has a better kill rate, not a hit rate, actually has a better kill rate than a HMG on any given target, all things being equal. Mm. But yeah, yeah. So, so, if, if anybody I would actually actually like to do the math, please please do so. Take that with a with a cup of salt. But, yeah, yeah I think well, just from looking at that, I think MMGs are have a higher kill turnover rate than HMGs on any given um, dice roll. One of the things on on ambush, particular in in the actual activation of the ambush itself, Daniel, can you can can you explain how um, the range comes into effect? Because you're essentially activating the ambush at any point of the opposing player's movement, right? Yeah, so that, and that, that's actually, that can negate additional modifiers in itself. Yeah, so that's actually in the next part where it moves on from control. 
so using ambush to control something. Uh, so triggering ambushes, using ambush to control the battlefield, understanding the strength of an ambush if it's a raid against you or you're setting one up. And then the next part is actually avoidance of an ambush, So, um, which sort of falls into that space. So your opponent is able to trigger that ambush off any move at any time. So you can actually declare a movement order, and before you actually move a single model, they can trigger it and they can take a shot. So often what is going to happen, um, especially if the unit has to cross open space with maybe only a minus one for a light fence or something, they're going to wait until the opportune moment where they can basically hammer you um, in open ground to, to minimize their negative modifiers to get the hit. One thing that isn't covered very well in the interactions between ambushing and movement um, is technically, by letter of the rules, you move each model one at a time from point to point within a unit. And whilst it's during doing its move, you can break unit coherency up because you're moving one model from one location to another. And so you physically have to break unit coherency in order to move that unit. That does mean that if you are between, for example, uh, I'll just get this on the camera. If you're between two walls and the unit's going this way between the two walls, you're only ever moving one model at a time through that gap. Mm -hmm. so, what, so what that means is that your opponent triggering an ambush can never just shoot through the gap and get you at no cover because you're only right. ever moving one model, right? That's something that a lot of people play wrong because they go, I'm just going to stop you when you're covering in that gap. I'm going to shoot you with no cover modifier and that's going to absolutely decimate your unit. That would be right, except for the fact that you only move one model at a time. Mm. Now, the way that it is played from a gentleman sportsman-like fashion is simply that the model is in the unit conga line as, as a whole across that space, which means that you can actually get potentially three or four models in that gap, potentially negating cover, um, but that's not actually how it physically works by letter of the rules. Mm. Most people don't worry about it. They know that you're on ambush. They know they're skating from cover to cover. Um, possibly in tournaments we would see it, but unlikely. It's There's not much you can do about that because you can't avoid that because you're already being triggered. Um, it's just how you guys choose to approach that as part of the game. My personal preference is if that gap is sort of four, five inches wide, I'll let them yeah. have the open cover shot. Like it's it's a huge amount of space. Mm -hmm. If it's one inch wide, yeah, I'm I'm sorry, I'm going to claim that I'm going to have cover. Um, yeah, right. In the position of that unit, um, and everything else I dice off, um, uh, unless it's very clear. But in terms of the range question that you had, Jacob, because they can trigger it at any point, the range is not not so beneficial for you. What, what does make a difference when avoiding an ambush or trying to get out of an ambush is when you have two units that are potentially targets. Uh, and what I mean by that is you have to have a supporting unit to essentially draw, attempt to draw the ambush to trigger yeah. to free up your other unit. So quickly in your head, you have to decide 
which unit is the highest priority to shoot not not to keep alive not to avoid pins not to do any of that stuff which one do i want to be able to shoot with maximum effectiveness because if i get shot by the ambush guys i'm going to take a pin i'm not shooting effectively once you've got that decision made you leave that unit till last and you move the other unit first and that unit needs to deliberately move away from the ambushes providing that they are at short or medium range because that will inflict a minus one when they shoot back if they shoot back um, don't do it if you're in the open because you just get cut down in the open but um, but you want to try and move away from the ambushes whilst giving yourself line of sight to shoot back you're trying to force your opponent to make a choice of shooting that unit that's just moved even though they're further away but might have come off cover a little bit for line of sight or deliberately waiting for the unit that you actually want to be able to shoot at full effectiveness mm. so you need you need that support there and it needs to be something of value for them to basically trigger like if you've got a medic and you're like, oh, I've got a supporting medic. I'm just going to run the medic backwards and you're going to shoot him and then I'll get to shoot at full effectiveness. That's not going to happen. Everyone's going to let the medic go. Yeah. They're going to deal with him later. At best, they've got a pistol that they can't shoot and they're going to wait for your other unit. Now, if it's set up right and if your opponent looks and goes, I'm going to get shot up by those two light machine guns that they've moved into range now, but they've moved further back, I'm going to get shot at I might have to go down, so that's great mm -hmm. because they go down. Or they're going to eat the shots and get a pin on them, which means that when they go to trigger the fire order, they're automatically at minus one. That reduces their chances to hit. If your unit that you want to shoot at full effectiveness is in cover, likely it is, um, you know, you're looking at now sixes for them to hit instead mm -hmm. of threes um, or fives. Um, but that difference, as, as Gorshin said, going from fives to sixes doesn't feel like a lot, and it's, it's not. But if you were able to, if you were at long range, for example, as well, you've now taken that from sixes to sevens. Mm -hmm. That's a much bigger difference. Um, and, and so, you know, that goes from sort of the potential one hit to you won't get a hit. That's essentially the statistical probability of a seven. Um, on one on dice, but yeah, you go from sixteen percent on a six to three percent on a seven. Yeah, yeah, yeah it just yeah, those it, tank shots at seven seem to get through. <laughs> <laughs> Long range Panzerfaust, man, that's the yeah. only way to go. <laughs> um, so that that's one way to avoid um the ambush is essentially trying to use two units and duke out the ambush so you can shoot with the one that you want to shoot with. Um, if you don't have an am a, a secondary supporting unit, um, one of the best things you can do is just choose to go down or actually to go in ambush yourself. Um, so if, you, if you're looking at it and you go, yep, I'm definitely going to get shot at uh, by the end of the turn, um, I don't know uh how that's going to go i don't have a supporting unit i need them to hold their position put them in ambush don't put them down when you're in ambush you can choose to go down so you get that you get that secondary option to go mm. down when you're in 
down, you're stuck. Like, yes, you're harder to hit. Yes, it's a free order. You don't have to take a test. All those good things. And if you hold that order until the end of the next turn, until the end of the next turn, you know, you do shed some pins automatically. That's that's really good. The fact of the matter is you can do all of those things because it relies on anyway. the down order being down. Yeah. So so you have the ambush order first. Now if multiple units are on ambush at the end of the turn, there's essentially um, I can't recall I haven't got my rule book with me here. That was silly, but um, there's not actually a predefined order for who tries to trigger the ambush first. Okay. Right. Yeah, I'll have a look. Which through. means that, which means unless so, if memory serves correct, because there's no defined order, I don't think you four plus it off. I think it's just if a unit wants to shoot, it rolls the dice on a four plus, it gets to take a shot. If that's the case. All that shooting actually happens simultaneously. Mm. It'd be great if you could confirm that. Um, um, yeah, so that's. I I mean it, it may be like ambush actually isn't covered as its as its own thing as a as a set thing, but perhaps it, it perhaps me reading this shooting procedure might make it make some sense to you. Declare a target, target reacts, measure range, open fire, roll the hit, damage, casualties, and morale. If you go um, under the orders section at the beginning yeah, of the, yeah, where it starts, like that. right at the beginning, ambush should be covered. Yeah, it does have a one-liner, which is uh, the unit does not move or fire. Instead, the soldiers take up firing positions and wait for the target to present itself. So that actually doesn't really detail any rules on right. that i'll be i'll be right back i'll grab my rule book because it'll yeah, be yeah, sure. it'll be beneficial for everyone yeah definitely um so while dan is so gone Jacob, for, yeah yeah when i played against matt we had a similar situation come up um what we did was again we're, i guess we'll find out if it's correct or not we basically played it like forward observers um we rolled the d6 the guy with the higher one got to activate first and then we just alternated um mm. We, we sort of talked about it and we said for the sake of the game and to keep the game moving, we just decided we were going to do that. And it seemed to make the most sense at the time. Um, mm -hmm. But of course, that'll that'll depend on what the rule book says. Um, what did you face? Did you face Matt's um, Fins. Finis? Okay. And this, this yeah. is pretty much a representation of what he physically owns? Uh, yeah, and he, yeah, that was that was a case of me getting dumpstered by turn three. Yeah. He will never, he would never admit it, but yeah, I was, I was slam dunked into a bin faster than you could. Was blink. this your first time facing a heavy ambush list? Uh, he was, to be perfectly honest, he wasn't using the ambush that much. He just, okay. he just outplayed me and outmaneuvered me every step of the way. I don't think it would have mattered if he had his finish list or not. Yeah. To be perfectly honest, um, uh, I so... made, I made so many mistakes, and he just absolutely steamrolled me. Um, what 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 happens to to most players is that they'll they'll play a finish list and they'll learn what ambush is. Um, and and you know the first time the first time you play against it, you're like, what do I do? Because <laughs> you, you're moving up and it will trigger. And then you're like, okay. So the, mate, after that, good. after that, that you good. go, um, I can fire, and and they won't be able to 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 react. But when you're firing at the the units in ambush, they can go down, right? Yes. So, yep. Yeah, it's pretty so, so, I like so it. Then, yeah. 
it, it's I had no it's, it's a really good rule, but um, yeah, good, Matt Castles for those that um that haven't played him, um, he's a very good player. Uh, I taught him the basics, and he has schooled me ever since. <laughs> Okay. Uh, and and an absolute gentleman as well. Um, oh, yeah, very definitely. very fun to yeah. play against. There, you will. He will be completely ruthless on the table, but he's extremely friendly, very personable, and and I still had an absolute blast getting like slam dunked by him. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, you would have seen him on our latest <laughs> stream for the two v two, which was Gorchin, myself yeah. versus Dan and Matt. Um, you would also yep. see him in our first video, which is the 148 tactic demo. Um, he played the allies oh, okay. there. Um, yep. But yeah, he's a he's a fantastic player, and you can learn quite a lot from him. Um, who's he training? Your Dan, are you training me, and, and Matt's training Gorchin? Is that how it's going to go? Well, like the the problem was, I trained Matt so well, he didn't <laughs> need me anymore. <laughs> <laughs> do it again to Jacob um, if you do. Yeah. If you do it right, I won't be able to keep up with Jacob, and then we'll have Jacob and Matt <laughs> dominating the Perth scene. It's great. Eventually, someone will train me, and I'll win a game. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I've got that rule book here. Yep. Uh, and so uh, it's on page 43, uh, right. retaining orders at the end of the turn. Uh, so normally dice are put back in the bag. However, there are two exceptions to this. Uh, the first one is ambush, where the unit can retain the ambush order as usual. Sorry, instead of putting it in the bag as usual. Yep. Uh, and then it, you know, basically they just stay in ambush as normal. Alternatively, at this point, a unit in ambush can attempt to fire. Roll a d6. On a four plus, the unit can fire normally, and then you put the order dice back, the ambush dice is put back as the opportunity to fire or whatever it is that caused them to be distracted. Now, what that means is because there's no ordering of actions in that space, you dropping into ambush in the example that we were previously talking about against mm -hmm. someone in ambush, at the end of the turn, both you roll off. If you both roll a four plus, you both shoot each other simultaneously. Mm -hmm. And so that's a way to um, another way of getting rid of ambush is to simply you, you go into ambush yourself and then you basically turkey shoot each other. Whoever can roll that four plus um, is going to get a shot, and whoever doesn't can't. Yeah, right. There is, of course, um, wouldn't be stuff that I'd written if there were just a couple of solutions. Um, you also need to look at, is it worth to move the unit? Um, like, absolutely, is it worth to, to move the unit? And if so, how do I want to move? Can I put more terrain between me and the firer? Um, am I going to be able to withdraw without being seen? Um, you know, if do I actually have to move? Can I hold off? Um, is it early enough in the game that I'm actually able to do a different order or sit where I am and and I can just wait till next turn to see if they want to risk holding the ambush. Because, of course, the more units that hold an ambush order over the turn, the less dice they have to activate in the next turn. Mm -hmm. So yep. against, against Matt's finish list, for example, he can come unstuck 
if he holds all his dice in account in ambush for the next turn waiting and then all of a sudden you draw out your three HE templates being uh, a howitzer tank, a, um, a mortar and a light howitzer, for example. You draw out all three of those. They don't care whether you're going to go down in terms of the hit ratio. They're just going to mm -hmm. indirect fire and go for the fives potentially or sixes. Um, if any of those hit straight away, that ambush order is coming off because they're going to go down. Mm -hmm. um, and that frees up the rest of your force. But none of those dice are in the bag to actually counteract now your entire move. You're, you're able to do whatever you want again. Um, there are some strengths to that as well. I mean, in that, that situation where we're talking about Gorchin's list with a few HEs, which I, I quite like, I'm going to start utilizing some more of that stuff because I've, I've kind of ignored it, to be honest. I've, I've picked the picked the things that look cool and th thematic and, and want lots of troops and but I, I want to add more HE into it. But um, there is a strength to forcing the opponent to make more actions while you've got these reactive units out on the field as well. It really, really yep. depends on this, the scenario and, and, and you know what, what, what things you can activate. But they're, 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 there's countless times where there's been these, these important arcs of fire that are covered by ambush that I'm stuck. And I'm like, how do I proceed? Yeah, look, it's um, I would recommend in most generic list builds, most, not all, at least two to three templates of HE of any variety um, are beneficial, uh, or at least the ability to potentially use HE. So um, everyone, most of Perth, I love my Soviets. They're um, they're a bit of a workhorse that I put them through a lot of different things. My favourite list combination is a, a medium mortar, a Ziz three divisional gun, and an Su seventy six tank destroyer, self propelled gun. Technically, the self propelled gun I can pay to give armor piercing rounds, so it becomes a medium anti tank gun and a light howitzer. The Ziz three mm -hmm. divisional gun comes with an anti-tank rounds, so it's a light howitzer and a medium anti-tank gun. And then the medium mortar um, is then another two-inch HE marker. So across the entire army, before artillery observers, before um, any of the other flamer goodies and other stuff that I put in, there's three two-inch templates. And most people go, two-inch template isn't that bad. Mm -hmm. The second part of that plan is to put all three of them in the same space. Um, you know, sort of in the same yeah. sort of, you know, sort of 12 inch, 18 inch box. Um, and so you've got multiple units in the same area of the board that are wanting to move, that are wanting to get out of the way, that are wanting to um, not get sit and hit by a howitzer shell. Mm -hmm. um, and that means that um, at any given point in time, really, when I'm playing hard with my Soviets, um, I can force an entire flank to either sit there and bunker down um, or consider repositioning, and then I just sweep that flank with my own stuff. Mm. Very nice. Anyway, that was a bit of a tangent on, yeah. uh, on HE, which is a different topic. But, um, Sorry. What it's else all have I got stuff. <laughs> well, I'm at... Um, I've almost got the last portion left to do 
um, about 54 pages. Um, but I haven't, I haven't actually. That's a written lot for ambush, isn't it? Yet, so it's not, yeah, okay, it's not just ambush. <laughs> it, does, it does link with quite a bit of stuff. Um, okay, where are we? Got a couple more things here. Um, other ways of avoiding ambush, because um, everyone knows how to set ambushes. That's probably the easy part, but it's how do you react to them, like Jacob was saying. Um, so you can redirect them, and that literally means uh, sending something else to eat the ambush instead. So this yeah. is different to the, um, the supporting unit uh, retreat that I was talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. This is actually the reverse of that and deliberately sending that unit forward instead of backwards of the ambush. Um, so a really good example is, let's say we have a 10-man rifle squad with a light machine gun, a German, German squad, in a building, and you have a flamethrower within six inches and a squad of 10 riflemen, light machine gun, within six inches. You want that flamethrower to get in and the yep. German squad's an ambush. You want that flamethrower to get in there and set the building on fire. It's what they do best, right? They, they mm -hmm. go in, they cook stuff. It's great. Everyone has a barbecue. Soviet player's really happy. The German player's really upset. Don't get over it. You could, because you want that flamer to go off, they're obviously on ambush because they know the flame is there. They want to kill that flamer. You could, at six inches, decide to go, well, I want to try and pull that unit off ambush. I want to try and get that, that unit to, to what's worth more to me. Well, I really want that flamethrower to go in and finish them off. Let's move that 10-man rifle squad that I've got with the light machine gun. Let's move that forward to three inches. And let's go for the, let's go for the regular shooting attack. Mm -hmm. um, now, a lot, of, a lot of players are going to look at that and go, I'm protecting in a building, so he's fives to hit. Uh, he's point blank, which is going to ignore the movement. So he's fives to hit. Mm -hmm. And that's when they're going to start thinking, oh, that's actually, what's, that's, like, that's like 20 shots on fives, and everything I get is a, at least a pin marker that's going to make it harder to hit that flamer team because they're a small team. Now, flamer team doesn't even have to move if it doesn't want to, but it probably will to get to the point blank and the three-inch mm -hmm. uh, three range because it makes it the hit. Hit modifier better. Even me in that scenario, I don't know if I would deliberately take fives to hit from 20 shots just mm. to kill a flamer team. I think I'd rather go down and force sevens and risk that the flamer team won't kill me um, or hope that I get another dice to deal with the flamer team another way. Um, but that's a very different way of swapping up the ambush because you put the pressure point blank onto the opponent and go, I'm going to make you choose whether I deal damage to your unit in that building now and then clean up with a flamer or whether you risk that I completely whiff all the attack rolls, which let's face it, if you're versing me, that's your choice. That's what you take. <laughs> um, and then the flamer goes and gets ambushed. But that, that's actually, especially depending on where the objectives are on the board, what turn of the game is it? Does the German have any supporting units nearby to help deal with that flame? All those things start coming into account. And so it's a very generic uh, sort of rule of thumb in ways to deal with it, but it's actually quite effective 
if you're in that circumstance. And a lot of my tactic stuff, um, just like uh, you know, a lot of a lot of what would be considered good tactics, is actually it's a range of tools in your toolkit to use. It's not just simply beating something with a sledgehammer. Um, mm. You know, it, it does require a little bit of finesse, but you will have the right tool at the right time to unlock whatever your opponent is doing. Um, and if you don't have any other option at all, um, and so you've got no supporting units around, um, let's say you've got a couple of pins on your unit um, and you're really like, nah, this is just going to go bad, just go down. Don't even bother moving. Don't give them the opportunity to trigger the ambush. Just go down. And you know, you're going to end up with um, a couple of pins off your unit. You're harder to hit. Yes, it means that your opponent might be in an ambush next turn. But again, that's a dice out of the bag that they're not doing anything with. Would you ever counter an ambush with an ambush and then try and see if they're, then they now know that that might be a waste? No, no, but but you, you you you're immediately making that initial ambush position not important anymore because it's like okay, well now he's taking the ambush. Maybe he's not actually going to oh, move right. forward. Yes, yes. I sorry. I thought I'd um when I was talking about the end of turn ambushing, I thought I covered off here. So yeah, I absolutely if. Instead of going down, like so, the, the trick with the ambush is you have to be able to pass an order test. So if mm -hmm. you have a couple of pins on you already, and yeah, okay. you can't risk that unit not performing an order, you can go down, which is free. You don't drop any pins, but you go straight down. That's going to impact his ambush anyway. Um, but if you didn't have any pins, or you only had one pin, absolutely go into ambush is what I'd recommend because you can go into ambush and if he goes to shoot at you, you can drop down. Um, or as we as we checked in the rule book, you can both wait till the end of turn and to go fight. for the 50-50 draw uh, and and just shoot him back. Mm. Um, but I mean is it, so Interestingly, things, on that draw sort of mechanic, would they yeah. still have the opportunity to convert it into a down? Uh, because it's done simultaneously as no. a, from a TO point of view, I will not because you either with that flexibility, you would have to deliberately hold them over with an ambush to the next turn without attempting to fire. Mm. So my understanding of the ruling is that as soon as everyone who wants to fire attempts to fire, you're all either dice coming off and you've wasted action or wasted the action for the turn, um, or you're flipping to the fire order to take a shot and then your dice yeah. is going back in the bag. So I probably, I mean, house rule however you want, I probably mm. wouldn't um, wouldn't support going back to down if you roll the dice to, to try yeah. and take a shot. Oh, that, um, that, that, this I mean, has been great, Dan. I mean, that, that, there's a lot to think about <laughs> in, in, in ambush. and it's, it's a mechanic I just rarely use. Um, and yeah. yeah, I mean, there, there are immediate things, takeaways in this 
that are easy, which is, you know, number one, you can just do sniper first turn ambush because then you can wait for them to pop into the open that it makes sense for you to use that fire order. Um, then there's, you know, considerations on, on making opponents make decisions um, when you are in ambush and, and, you know, you are locking down sectors of the board. Um, it's it's a it's a really strong ability just for one activation that otherwise could have just been you know firing on sixes. Yeah, that's right. And and when you look at as Gorchon was talking about with the um, you know the dual ambushing units, it's actually uh, an order that gets exponentially stronger the more supporting ambushing units you have nearby, which is why the fins generally work so well, mm. um, is because you have the option to either double up your ambushes on someone moving and pour twice the amount of shots into them, uh, or you can just do one at a time and spread pins across the entire opponent battle line. Mm. Brilliant. Um, so that's a, um, that's a drop in the water. That's that's a Dan quick review at, at ambush, eh? So you yeah, you um, like an hour. <laughs> um, just just to fill people in on the podcast, we talked about it in episode one, but um, Dan has been working on a player's handbook on bolt action and all of the interactions on decision making and 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 becoming a better player and and things to take into account and it and it's. Correct me if I'm wrong. It's kind of measured in in different cycles of of here's what you need for the beginner and the medium and and sort of the expert on on a yep. variety of different topics. Um, and you've been editing this for for several years, and um, the idea was that we would slowly integrate some of these topics into the podcast, and then we'll create some actual video content specifically around some of those interactions, and 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 go from there. Um, but it's kind of uh, dense bolt action life work at the moment um and uh hearing any little bits of it is is really exciting yeah it's um it's sort of taking a bit of a, a life of its own just in the document and so this format of where i'm actually discussing building questions obviously anyone that has a comment that wants to throw in or add their opinion or contact me um, or jacob or gorchen please do like I don't want this specifically to be purely my viewpoint. That is where it originates from. Um, I've spent a lot of time, <laughs> a lot of time thinking about it, working things out on the table, um, obviously playing and the experience of it. Um, you know, I've got a, anyone that's following uh, the Rockingham Historical Gamers can actually see my journey in strategy war games over the last sort of 10 days. I'm doing one of those challenges um, mm -hmm. on, on the Facebook page. And that explains sort of how and why I think like I do um, with some of this stuff. But the, the intent is to make someone who doesn't feel that they can play, play better. And it's not because what they're doing is wrong. They just simply don't have the knowledge base that some of us other gamers do. I'm trying to speed that learning process up by documenting some of how that all works um, to make it a bit easier so that we can have more gamers like Matt Castles, for example, who now is showing other people how to play so it's working great for our Perth scene, but I'd, I'd really be quite comfortable to go make over what you will. Mm -hmm. This is working for us, but here's here is a player guide. Here is 
some things to think about when you want to become a better player. Mm-hmm. That's definitely really exciting. Um, can't wait to hear more about it. Um, I'm sure we can expand on it on the episodes and eventually get those documents published one day. Um, it's yeah. it's really cool and like it's it's sort of in a, a strange point for us in the sense that our club is super casual and we we we've enjoyed playing games for fun and I'm not suggesting that learning more about the game doesn't make it more fun um, and and really thinking about it a bit more but uh, you know there's there's two different mindsets on playing you know are you playing competitively are you are you playing at a bit more of a relaxed level and i i'm comfortable to 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 make those decisions on on you know what is appropriate based on the opponent there and then so it's exciting for me because i'm again i'm the the newest guy on the block for for wargaming out of out of all of us um you know and 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 i've been just playing it casually for fun and, and taking an interest in it but um i consciously want to get better and i don't have the experience um to do that on my own uh, and and there there are there are concepts and things that you think about that i don't naturally think about um yeah. and and that may just come from the different background that i have um but uh any 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 bits of information any chats that i have with dan post game pre-game it's always uh exciting and there's 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 a little bit extra that you you end up thinking about um on on playing games in general and it and it doesn't necessarily uh focus just on bolt action either um that that there's a lot of mechanics uh there's a lot of um just game theory and things that, that could be applicable to other systems as well. Um, so, you know, uh, Dan's going to talk about the specifics of bolt action and, and, and the sort of decisions around that, but you'll be able to um, make some judgments from there on where this could be applicable elsewhere. So, um, yeah, definitely. There's, um, there's a bit of coverage on um, some real basic um, hit percentages, um, Mm. uh, talking about, you know, deployment in war games, um, you know, maneuvering. um, Particular units often have certain roles, certain certain purposes, um, and that that sort of stems across um, definitely into things like, um, you know, Age of Sigma, Warhammer 40,000, those, those units generally have a very specific role. They might all have a, generally all have a cool gun of some description that does cool things, but innately within those those uh, rules designs, they excel at doing certain types of things. It's always been that way, um, mm-hmm. and, and most war games, because it comes from history, right? You, know, you go back to um, even ancient history with the different weapon types, the different armor types, your different um, uh, strategies to try and uh, attack um, Alexander the Great breaking the Greek phalanxes like it was all different ways of applying different tools um, it's exactly the same on the board that's really all it is mm. 
and I think I think Jacob, you're not um, you're sort of selling yourself short a little bit here. I know you've played a fair bit of Company Heroes. I know you like other strategy games. Yeah. Um, if you think about Company Heroes, each one of those units has an individual purpose. Um, mm. it, if you're playing if you're playing Axis very quickly, Volk's Grenadier squads are nice and cheap. You can get them real quick. But it's it's a very fast. It's a very early point in the game. You can get a five man squad with SMGs in in close combat. That's that's absurd in Company of Heroes. Mm-hmm. The the sort of thinking about my opponent is fielding this. I need to bring this out. That's the same sort of mentality you need mm. to have during list building. But you have to have a more general yep. sort of idea. What are the likely things that I'm going to look at? And you were actually quite lucky in bolt action. Um, that a generic reinforced platoon looks quite similar for most nations. Yeah. You'd expect a tank, you'd expect an armored car, you'd expect some infantry. So make sure you have a tool in your toolkit that you bring with you that you can mm. solve each one of those different problems. Now, the, the, the challenging part, of course, is you are limited with, at any given game, you're limited to the tools that you've brought. Now, um, you know, an adjustable wrench doesn't make a perfectly fitted socket spanner and it yeah. never will. But if it's all you've got, you just got to get on that nut and you've just got to turn it. There's no other, there's no other two ways about it, but it's about making the most out of what you've got. That's, that's where the challenge is in a lot of these sort of war games is because you can't just go to your barracks, build another unit mm-hmm. um, to counter the AT guns or something like that. It's like, yeah. and one of the things that I certainly struggle with um, a lot in wargaming is like, if you can't solve that problem, stop trying to solve that one. Make a new problem yeah. for your opponent. <laughs> there have been a yeah. lot of cases where I've gone, uh, I can't deal with that tank. I'm just going to keep trying or I'm just going to keep trying to get rid mm-hmm. of that squad and cover. Just ignore it. If they're going to sit yeah. in cover and do their thing over there, just circumvent them completely. So they're, you have to outmaneuver their advantage somehow. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, that's all easier said than done. But it's just some things to think about is that, you know, you might do the same thing in, in an RTS rather than coming across and trying to take on an, an enemy's late game super heavy, you might actually just outmaneuver it and just mm-hmm. go, yeah, it yeah, can do it its own thing over things. there and I'm just going to completely ignore it. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, um, um, my, my benefit in video games is always trying to outdo on reaction time. Um, and that's just yeah, okay. something that I can not bank on at all in wargaming because it is turn-based. Um, so it's, it is new to me. Uh, whereas before, it's just like, okay, I, I can get faster at this than anybody that I can face. So th- that will that will get me over this hurdle. So <laughs> you've, you, that, that actually um, sounds like, you know, when you say it like that, it's like, oh, your reaction time is getting more games. You've actually um, touched on something very interesting. There was a, there was a fighter pilot um, called Lieutenant John Boyd. He he is the embodiment of you can either be someone or you can do something. And rather than accepting fame, he decided to completely reinvent um, dogfighting and fighter jets. Uh, so he, he has this concept called an OODA loop, uh, which is now not unique to him, and, and it's actually been used everywhere. But it's it's observe, orient, decide, act, and it's this decision-making process that everybody goes through. You see something, you orientate, you observe it, you orientate your thinking to that problem, you decide how you're going to solve the problem, and then you execute your action. Now, in in wargaming, of course, you're afforded luxury, um, because you typically only have to, especially bolt action, you only have to do that once every order dice. Now, the advantage of reaction time is a 
byproduct of being able to cycle through your OODA loop very quickly. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that you should try to do is rather than thinking about only the action step, try to observe lots of different things, try to orient lots of different things, and try to make lots of different decisions. Now, the best way you one of the best ways to defeat your opponent in a dogfight Boyd came up with was you interrupt his OODA loop. The best thing you can do mm. is once he's observed something and oriented it, you force him to go back to observation because he, then he hasn't made a decision. And even if he wanted to act, he can't. He's paralyzed. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. that's, you can, of course, that happens slower in a, in a war game. But use the the reaction time, use that mentality of I've got to do these things, I've got to do them really quickly. Use that to come up with a dozen different strategies Mm. before they've even finished moving that squad. Because sometimes, I know for me, the first idea that I come up with is never the best one. And so far, it hasn't been the 14,000th idea that I've come up with. If I've come up with the best idea, I will let you know. It hasn't happened yet. (laughs) But the thing is, Generally speaking, they're better. Or every now yeah, and again, okay. I will yeah. have five or five or six ideas that are the same, and I'll go, nope, I haven't changed my observation. I'm still oriented on the same thing. Okay, that's the only decision I can do there. I need to think about something different and try to come up with a different plan. And this is uh, that sort of an embodiment of what we were talking about earlier, but just rolling a Sherman on to deal with a sniper team. That's mm. That is an orientation yeah. I never had. Yeah. Yeah, because because I've I've observed the sniper team, I've oriented. Okay, I need to deal with that threat. I'm going to deal with it by something that can't be threatened by a sniper. But I was so locked into this tanks are oriented to dealing with other tanks that I couldn't break that that mm-hmm. framework that groove. And so you can um, you can play this game with your opponent where you force them to make multiple observations as much as you can, mm. and if you ever see, if you ever find yourself looking at the table, holding onto an order dice, going, uh, "That's you stuck in your stuck in an OODA yeah. loop," right? Mm. And so that's you, ideally you never want to be there, and you want to force your opponent to be there. Which is why I take this is why I have a really um, uncomfortable and weird grin on my face when I see my opponent doing that. It's like, ah, got you. <laughs> yeah, and it, it it seems to happen with me more often with stronger opponents as well like it, it is not just an inaction from my ability to read what's happening it is it happens yeah. more frequently if i verse dan or matt and a pick and in particular if i verse any of the mundane nights so and yeah. a, a capable opponent will either be doing that consciously because they're trying to interrupt your OODA loop or they're doing that unconsciously they don't realize that it is what they're doing but that is exactly what they're doing hmm. Yeah, it's um, it's it's all. I mean, I 100% agree with you, Gordon. Like, um, my yeah, when when I'm playing with a bit more of a competitive edge, because I do for a lot of the games where I want to play to have fun, I dial it right back. Like, I just play to have fun. But um, definitely when I'm in that competitive headspace, um, yeah, I don't count the OODA loops because I'd lose count. But I'm constantly reassessing things every every physical model that's moved can essentially be um, where it is on the board. 
it'll influence my decision making and I have to quickly rapidly bounce backwards and forwards. But have I got you? Yeah, we kinda got uh, you, but <laughs> Yeah, all right. Well, it's um yeah, it's I was just saying that I had to learn how to do that OODA loop stuff quicker to play forty K tournaments. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that that's actually one of those things where I go, you go, um, is is a, actually a lot more overwhelming because mm. you don't, you're not forced into hitting your decide and act. Um, the game, if you're not sort of experienced at the design of the game and the I go, you go system, actually interrupts your OODA loop mm-hmm. all the time. Yeah, and mm. and so. That's why a lot of people find those games overwhelming. It's because they're trying to take in so much information and then distill all of this information into one decision and one action, which in an I go, you go game is actually also not what you're doing because, of course, you're moving your whole army. So it's not one decision and one action. It's several. Um, And typically, uh, my experience has been playing against very strong 40K players i'm not really one of them i'll happily admit that i've only done tournaments sort of casually having come across some of those guys they're they've baked in um a second ooda loop into their current ooda loop it's absurd mm-hmm. like they're going okay this is what i'm going to do and if that doesn't work out i already know what my next four ooda loops are because i've already done them of mm-hmm. each one of those outcomes um which is probably yeah. a chess thing right you know, it's a rote learning the opening moves and that sort of thing but yeah, it's it, try to use that reaction time rather than sort of writing it off and saying it has no place. Try mm-hmm. try to again. This is your strength. This is your background. This is something that you've done heaps. Just try to find a way to apply it um, mm. because it, you you know when <laughs> when that Carthaginian crossed the Alps, he wasn't he wasn't relying on stuff that he didn't know. Um, yeah. <laughs> he was relying on stuff that he'd done hundreds of times before. Um, and it's the same everywhere else. Uh, mm. And when, when he came, when Fabian was doing it to, to him, uh, you know, later on the seasons to follow, it's the same shit. They're just doing on, they're relying on stuff that they know and getting it to work for them. Um, mm. and, and and you'll see that a lot. You'll come across players who are doing stuff you've never thought of. Um, Dan coming up with, there's a six face on the dive, guys, please remember to use it. And that stuff <laughs> blows my mind. Um <laughs> But these are things that are that are inherent to everybody. Is that you will have these differences, and don't don't write off strengths in other areas. Mm -hmm. Just find a way to apply them instead. And just like you build um, a list in your army as a toolkit to bring to the table, try to figure out the tools that you have in your toolkit Mm -hmm. um, in terms of the way that you think about things and your other experiences, and find the things that you can apply in bolt action. Um, mm. Or wargaming in general. I've, I suspect that there are actually quite a lot of people out there who um, undermine and underhand their own strategic and tactical thinking because they think it's not relevant. Mm. Yeah. Yep. One hundred percent. Cycling um, back to the the start of this podcast where we talked a lot about tabletop simulator. I think that's probably a good space to sort of put a lot of these things into practice because there's a good part of this hobby that's the hobby side of it and you know you are buying the cool models that you like from history to paint up and not necessarily i don't 
there are different. There are two different players. There are players that will read the rule book straight away and then des- decide how to build their army based on the combinations that they can see in there. And there's the other players like me who go, I want to have these things because I've read about them or seen them in a movie or something like this. And I, I go ahead and buy the things that I'm going to enjoy to paint. And then I think about later through experience of matches what I'm going to need to actually fill the gaps that I'm missing. And I think that um, that can get expensive doing it that way. It's more fun. You get to paint what you like. Um, but uh, I think with that immediate access to every model that's possible in Tabletop Simulator, you can kind of make those combinations work for you before you're committing to painting the models and spending the time on them. Um, so I, I think that that's, that might be my kind of go-to before building and buying too much that I just like the look of. Um, didn't help me with my latest army. I still still bought an infantry box of paras and and, and a tank destroyer. But like I kind of needed both of those anyway. Um, I haven't I haven't decided on what other options I need. Like I don't know what mortars I'm going to need, what artillery pieces I'm going to need. I don't I haven't even read the US books. Um, knowing you got an HQ though, right, Jacob? I got you know plastic infantry model out of the. The, the, the plastic box that can behave like an HQ. I got one pointing. I got one pointing with you know, and I got one pointing with the Thompson. I can adjust them. I've chucked in as many bars as the plastic kit has. So <laughs> I haven't actually put in mind what the infantry squads should look like. I've mm-hmm. I've literally taken them out of the box and and chucked in the weapon options. I think I've tried. To, I've really reduced on the Thompson because I know I've had a lot of German kits where I put in a lot of SMGs and always find that they're out of range. So this one, I was like, all right, I'm going to put a lot of riflemen. That's just how I'm going to build them up. But I, I didn't go in there with a list in mind. I'm like, these are the 30 paras I want right now. I'm going to paint these up. I'm going to figure out how I want to paint these as well. And then I'll actually look at expanding the list and, and buying stuff as I can afford it. Um, but yeah, like uh, I, I don't, I don't look at something and go, I need to spend this $200 in this configuration to get this list. That doesn't do it for me. I, I buy the pretty models that I want at that time and I paint what I want. But um, I don't know. It, it might actually change my mindset on creating lists to, to do them digitally first, especially now because there's, there's no way to play physically anyway. <laughs> you can come to my house just when no one's here. <laughs> <laughs> and not tell the government. <laughs> um, yeah, well, I think it's important probably to recognize, Jacob, that um, everyone's hobbyist journey in any of these hobbies um, is unique and you're not doing it wrong. Yeah. Um, I want to be, yeah, I want to be very clear about that. Um, same with any anyone that's listening or watching along with us. Um, your hobby journey is not wrong. Um, Everyone goes through different stages of what they're doing. Um, I started out, I, I've never, never been in a place of I'm going to purchase miniatures that I want to paint. I actually really struggle to get stuff painted. Um, I, my primary focus was building models, love building models, and playing games, love playing games. Innately, that led to I'm going to design lists that I want in games that are fun to play not overly broken 
and then I'm going to fulfill those lists. The one that I'm working on at the moment, which I think I've got down pat from all the reading and testing I did, uh, is the Bulgarian winter uh, force. That's a really hard force to play, <laughs> really hard. <laughs> um, they don't have many tools. Uh, they don't have many weapon options. They don't have many national characteristics. Um, and the to national pick. characteristics that they do have, I'm essentially only using one of them, um, which which is for the Panzer III. But um, that's done from a gaming point of view because that's where I go. I would love to be at a point of actually doing stuff for the sake of just wanting to paint it, but that's not me. It's just not how it goes. Um, I, I love and respect the fact that you can do that. And I've seen you paint more armies in since the time that I've known you than I own. <laughs> yeah. These guys know what my garage looks like. <laughs> my, my problem is these beautiful campaigns that we keep designing and um, the different theatres that Nick builds a board for. So, <laughs> so you know, that's as soon fair. as he that's said fair. he's building a winter force, I'm like, well, what, what are you doing? Oh, I'm Germans. All right, well, you're going to need Paris to fight that. So, all right, I'll buy, I'll buy some Paris. Um, and then <laughs> now, now you know, Gorchen's doing Varsity. So I, and I've lost my summer germans i guess i ended up selling them on to to support um uh i don't know more, probably more DAC that i needed at the time i don't know but um Look, jacob we're talking much 45 you don't need like you know men in uniforms you need like old men and children and like no. plastic guns <laughs> and then and then that pretty much represents the german forces just, of march 1945 maybe a i just don't stick. think the the um <laughs> the yellow uniforms are gonna are gonna work though it's probably it the only be. thing that wasn't there <laughs> um and yeah, no, and I've doubled down on, on Nick's one, so I've, I've made them all winter theme because I wanted to learn how to do winter theming for 148 Tactic. Um, and I was like, oh yeah, the, the, the yep. bold action models are, are more my thing. I can I can learn on that. I'm like, okay, now these look really good, so I'm going to chuck more snow on them. <laughs> now they won't be appropriate <laughs> for, for Gorchin's board. No, it's it's clear. There's a there's a clear hierarchy of boards, and, and I'm not at the top. I, I see how that is. <laughs> okay, Gorchin, you um, you, you wait for it long enough, and um, you you have what happened, where I got eventually got to my terrain and actually started doing it up nice, and the the foam core ruins now look like um, Italian Mediterranean ruins. And it brings you up a level, and you know, um, Jacob will start looking at your board a bit differently. <laughs> I do really like One your day. board, and I'm not actually. I'm, this is this is not like you know, this is not conscious. I just saw that winter no, stuff, and I've never never painted winter. And I was like, yeah, I want it. I want it. It's not that uh, you look. <laughs> I see how it is. It's fine. <laughs> you don't have to lie to my face, Jacob. <laughs> Oh. On TV, yep, that's true. <laughs> but, but yeah, yeah. On 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 your varsity thing, I still don't know what I want to do. Uh, I mean, the 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 easy option is just to chuck the winter troops in there and just deal with it. Um, but I'm like, do do I go German? Do I go? Why not? 
Yeah, I don't know. Um, so run, run me through it very quickly. Um, what forces are there? Uh, so it's been a while since I've actually looked at looked at the narrative notes for Varsity. I've just been like deep in the strain stuff. But off the top of my head, I know you've got American and British paratroopers. Mm-hmm. Um, they were sort of the the paratrooper force. Um, the as far as I remember, um, I don't think there was Canadians. Um, mm-hmm. The Canadian Corps wasn't present, but again, take that with a pinch of salt. Um, the, the American and the British also had uh, an armor mechanized force actually crossing the Rhine itself. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the Allied Air Force was there in, in all of its late war glory. The Luftwaffe was actually still quite present. Um, lots of... Uh, as many Fockwolf 190s as they could really field, but it was still some late model 109s. Um, interestingly, you actually saw a lot of um, Luftwaffe support personnel, basically not frontline combat pilots and not the people they needed to keep them flying because the Air Force is getting smaller. A lot of them actually were in combat units as well. Mm-hmm. Um, there were some elements of the Panzer Division was there. Uh, so Panzer Grenadiers actually fall, fell under Panzer division, you didn't get a Panzer Grenadier unit. They were attached to, they were sort of a, an infantry, I think it was a battalion attached to, to a Panzer division. But yeah, they, um, so they were there, but they were, uh, they were in this weird space where they had more material than they did men. Mm-hmm. Not ammo, but they had, because when when the men would get up and flee from these positions and then the the units would retreat they'd leave all their anti-tank and all their machine guns behind and so all of these like leftover units would just pick them all up so it almost got to the point where they had like one anti-tank gun per squad um okay which wow. is absurd absolutely absurd um they never actually fielded them in that sort of manner because you don't need squads manning anti-tank guns you need them doing squad stuff um, but at that point of the war, you're also talking a lot of Volkssturm, which is mm-hmm. the, um, it's not official Wehrmacht soldiers, they're uh, political paramilitary yep. organizations. Um, and then you've got Volksgrenadiers, which was the attempt to make um, Volkssturm have clout and influence, um, mm-hmm. which were, again, uh, a sort of Nazi party soldiers, quote unquote, mm-hmm. um, but they were given sort of slightly better equipment and stuff. And so, so Volksgren yeah, so, very quickly are they um, they're not under the influence of the army at all. It, it, so it SS varies. troops, it, and it's not quite varies, um, yeah. but it depends on on how much that particular political person liked that particular field commander. Um, mm-hmm. And so Volkssturm and Volksgrenadiers were technically political. They they had their own hierarchy, their own organization, their own ranks. Um, and same, like all of the SS divisions as well, they were under direct answer to the, the Nazi party, not the Wehrmacht, and they had their own supply chains and, and purchasing and stuff, which is why you see um, like weird variants of tanks and stuff in, yeah. in SS Panzer divisions and that sort of thing. Um, just because the you know the Nazi and the party and Hitler was just like oh man I really want this real cool big shiny tank, and the Volkssturm and the Volksgrenadier had um, not just like inferior equipment by standard, um, some of it was inferior, some of it was better, but they also actually had inferior designs as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were there were these 
they got their own bizarre assault rifle don't they uh, it's not quite an assault rifle, but yeah, they came up and like honestly, when you look at them up close, and Forgotten Weapons did a great video on the the uh, VG one dash five, which is the Volkssturm like rifle. It's like, man, I have seen Nerf guns that I would take into combat over that thing. Um, <laughs> it's just, but yeah, and and so you had you had Panzer divisions, you had Panzer Grenadiers, Volkssturm, Volksgrenadiers, um, Luftwaffe uh, as acting as soldiers. You had Kriegsmarine. So the Navy mm. acting as soldiers as well. Um, so pretty much every German man and his dog who was willing to fight at the time was, was there. There was also, um, I'm not sure if they quite made it into varsity, but later on probably in Berlin, they were there. There was um, effectively what was like political militia forces as well. You were, um, you had a, you were given a military position and a ranking of how quickly you should respond to allied forces in your street in Berlin, depending on what your day job was. So you're, if you were a school teacher, you were supposed to respond really quickly because it didn't matter if you were at school when their allies were in your streets. But if you were in a, if you were a doctor, you weren't supposed to respond to the call wow. from militia because yeah, it's, it was actually quite interesting, quite complex. I think um, military history visualized did a really good video on that one. Um, uh-huh. The names escape me. If if we remember by the time we publish, we'll, we'll throw it in the uh, script uh, link or something in the description. But yeah, it's it's real fascinating. Um, depending on on what your day job was, depending on whether or not you should be fighting or keeping at your day job, which uh, from a, a state of emergency, a state of war emergency, makes a lot of sense. Um, uh-huh. I, I could definitely see any country uh, doing that, not just uh, yeah. Nazi Germany, for example. Mm. Um, and you talking about Luftwaffe there. Would you see Fallschirmjäger that didn't paratroop in? So the Fallschirmjäger regiments at the time, basically after Crete, you got this really weird thing where Fallschirmjäger, some of the Fallschirmjäger regiments um, as were veterans and they retained their elite veterancy status, both in, in equipment and training and capability. And then there was these other Volks, uh, sorry, these other Fallschirmjäger regiments that were just in name. Um, effectively in name. Yeah, they weren't, yeah. they didn't have any additional training. They weren't any different from regular soldiers. In fact, most of them weren't even combat veterans. And by mid to late war for Germany, that's exceedingly rare mm. um, for you to have somebody who's not seen combat because the even even early in the war, the Wehrmacht was an elite and veteran fighting force by the time they, they came to the Eastern Front and by the time they invaded Poland, thanks to the Spanish Civil War and some other influences that they were involved in in Europe. So, yeah, to see Fallschirmjäger regiments made up of completely green and inexperienced mm. soldiers that were under-equipped was, was quite absurd um, for a lot of people, which is uh, a, a bit of a tangent here, but it's why you see um, some after-action reports of allied forces against Fallschirmjägers like differ wildly in the capability of Fallschirmjäger units. Like the ones mm-hmm. holding Carantan were, were genuine tough as nails veterans. And then the ones that they encountered on the outskirts of Carantan as they beat them back was the green reinforcements and they just walked all over them. Yeah. Um, and, but they didn't know any better, right? They've got Fallschirmjäger uniforms. They've got you know, the equipment and, and stuff like that. And so, but by the time you get to, to March 1945, most of those units are, um, yeah, they're not really combat effective anymore. They're even if they are experienced, they're weary and 
and all of the equipment's shot to shit. But they've got more rifles than they've got ammo, and that's the important part, I guess. Uh, and th- this is reflective in the, the bolt-action theater lists towards 44-45 that you actually get to be able to field FJs in um, regular and inexperienced as well, and green, um, yeah. and, and a lot okay. of the different units. Uh, I think um, I think only the the late war SS only go as low as regulars for some bizarre reason, unless you're going Hitler Youth or something like this. Um, yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, there there are a lot of inexperienced slash regular options for Germans that you don't necessarily see in the other books um, when you when you look at late war. Uh, should be interesting to have a look at a, a Vox Voxum force might be um, be interesting. It's going to play terribly for sure. But um, I don't know. Are there, are there any interesting options for them, Dan? Do they get like an absurd amount of Panzerfaust or something strange? They um, they actually did. So I had a um, Josh Cello for a little while was testing a um, a Volkstrom list, uh, which was designed around those squads. Yeah, they get quite a bit of kit. They do get quite a bit of kit. Um, if it's the same squad that I'm thinking of, they start off as green mm-hmm. and they potentially, the ones he was using, that is, start off as green. Uh, and then when they took their first casualty, like a green test, they would actually uh, potentially bounce to regular. Mm-hmm. Um, and if they took a casualty when they were regular, they could bounce to being veteran, I think it was, in two separate right. roles. Wow. Um, that made some of the units that got that double succession quite painful to deal with um, because you've got the numbers of, of what is largely a regular inexperience list suddenly bolstered by veterans. Mm-hmm. But most of them didn't make it to regular, yeah. which is the catch. So um, it made the list which focused on those core sorts of units quite unreliable because you could commit something, commit two units even onto one plank and go, you need to hold objective A. One would say is inexperienced. One might bump to regular, but it doesn't bump to veteran. Um, but you're versing two regular forces, so yeah, it's yeah. If, if it's the same sort of combo I'm thinking of, it, it's it's fun to play because there's an element of unpredictability to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it actually, depending on how you design that list, it became challenging to play for exactly the same reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, how, uh, just closing up, how f- close are you to finishing that board, Gorch? And I'll, I'll sneak a little bit of video in um, at the end of this um, when you've got something uh, to share. So I'm I'm actually pretty close. Uh, I've I almost finished them on the Easter weekend, but that was about four days of me just running dry on six or seven different materials. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've got the the whole board for the whole narrative setting is four um, three by fours. So you'll end up with basically two six by four um, games to play. And the, the, the four sort of tiles are going to be interchangeable. Um, so I figured once we're out of our entrenched positions, we can just leave them at the club and have people use them freely. Um, I need to basically flop a, flock up a couple of more trees mm-hmm. uh, base a couple of base some two tiles and then i'm pretty much done 
Um, nice. They, they, were, they are playable uh, at that yep. point. The only thing that's left is I'm going to do some um, just just some like small detail work, things like you know, getting some clumper, sorry, some denser clumps for mm-hmm. to scatter about the grass for some brushes and, and things like that. That, nice. that sort of thing. You know, once once I've got them together, is going to be throw them down, glue them on, done. Um, yep. So it's going to be not even a half hour bit of work. But yeah, I think if I've, I, but yeah, I ran out of grass. I ran out of the type of glue that I was using. I ran out of the thinner. My spray bottle got clogged. I ran out of the clump <laughs> of the tree foliage. I ran out of the varnish. It was just like, and all of this stuff was at least half full when I started on the Friday. And I was like, yeah, oh, it'll be fine. Um, yeah, and then every time I ran out of something, I was like, "Oh, that's fine. I'll finish this other thing that I don't need yeah. that for." And then that happened, yeah, yeah an infinite number of times. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, but <laughs> yeah, I've got I've got two four by threes done, so you can stick them together to get a six by four, and mm-hmm. you're good to go. Um, so yeah, we'll have some footage of that coming shortly. I think. Yeah, no, that'd be really cool. I mean, I'm sorry to keep going on about it, but it's like the one exciting hobby thing that's going to be happening as soon as this whole um, COVID thing is over. As soon as it's over. Um, yeah. As soon as it's over. Yeah. So uh, definitely want to get straight into that event as soon as ASAP when you know the world is well again. Um, so super excited for that. Um, I think we should probably call it for um, our first live, not live stream, but you know, uh, Zoom That's meeting for 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 um, the historical miniature gamers. Unless there's anything that we clearly need to discuss right now that I have missed. No, I don't think so. I think um, you know it's all of these tactics, bits and pieces that I'm working through, like we like we were just talking about the ambush order essentially for an hour. Like, mm-hmm. so I, I certainly don't want to flood the channel and the, and the content with that sort of stuff all the time because it will just drive people insane. But um, I, I certainly think that we've covered it well enough and a lot of extra stuff uh, in addition this session. Um, I think it's been good. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm, I think we're good. Yeah. All right. Well, I think uh, we'll sign out because I think Gorchin just lost battery on his mobile phone or anything like that. But um, good to catch up with you. It's 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 better than just you know chatting online um, through text and stuff. Um, yeah. So that, that that was really cool. Um, and yeah, hopefully we can do some uh, gaming online very soon and stream that to let other people know what we're up to. Yeah. Sounds good. All right. Catch you down. Uh, mate, thanks very much. See you All later. Right. See ya.